Why did you write a book about happiness? I wrote a book about happiness because the Stoics had really resonated with me. I was I studied law. Right? I was supposed to be a lawyer, and I uh, graduated, and I was living in Bristol, this lovely city in England, and making my living as a magician because that was the hobby that I'd started. And I was just thinking, well, I need to, at some point, will this just grow into a job? I don't know, but I, I know that my priorities are just kind of, I want my life, my days to feel like this is good, everything's in the right place, and this is kind of an enjoyable and worthwhile pastime, and that, or worthwhile existence. And I never really thought beyond that, so I've never had any kind of ambition, genuinely, of, of any, any sort. Which is why, you know, I'm really, I'm not on the whole goal setting thing particularly. But the trouble with thinking like that is as you grow up and become successful with what you do, is you start to feel like a kid, like everyone else is a grown up and you're the kid and slightly embarrassed that you don't seem to care enough about the things that everybody else cares about. Mm. The businessy things and the viewing figures and the, this, I, my interest was genuinely, am I enjoying what I'm doing and is it worthwhile? And then I read the Stoics and although that's not like their central message, it's a big part of their, what they write about, you know, not trying to control things that are out of your control, not attaching yourself to things that leave you then emotionally kind of vulnerable and, you know, just your relationship to the present moment and so on. And it really resonated. So I, I uh, read a lot and it took me off into other directions and I started writing and I wrote this book on happiness. It took me three years to write it while I was on tour. So three years, but blocks of writing, not like three solid years. And also that meant by the end of it, I kind of had grown and changed and felt differently. And I, I think for anyone that knows about stoicism, and it's an immensely valuable resource in terms of if what you want is a sense of feeling centered and a kind of emotional robustness in your life, and if you suffer from anxiety and so on, it's, it's phenomenal. I think that where it slightly doesn't deliver is the importance of anxiety. It's all about avoiding anxiety. Their, their image of happiness was a sort of tranquility, avoiding disturbance. But actually, of course, disturbance is really important. Anxiety is important in life because how do you change? How do you grow unless some anxiety triggers that lets you know that something's wrong? Yes. If we just look for security all the time, and I say this because I know I'm like this. Like this is my problem: is that I'm I'm too I'm very good at avoiding stress, very good at avoiding anxiety. But the danger is, I don't, am I going to grow, or you know, I'm just going to be too comfortable? That's not you know, that's not necessarily a, a good thing. It's not a recipe for complacency, which it can often sound like when you talk about this kind of tranquility and non-attachment. It's just it's a very robust kind of language. They talk about being like a rock where the waves are lashing against you. I prefer the image of a sort of, I don't know if you know Martha Nussbaum, who's an American philosopher who writes a lot about these things, but she talks about being more porous, like a rock that the waves, the water can move through. And I think that's a more helpful image. I think that's a, that's a good way, I think, of stepping out into life. As if you can have a, a robustness, but at the same time, a kind of an easy, porous relationship with what's going on, that gives you that easier relationship to fate and fortune and all those things that they used to honor and recognize so much more than we do now. That's a good starting point for life. So I wrote, I, I wrote this book, Happy, and ironically, the moment I finished writing it, I was out giving talks on happiness, feeling oddly sad, and I couldn't work out why, and it was because this amazing three-year writing project had ended, and I realized, yeah, I, the importance of some kind of creative pursuit or something that brings you out of yourself is so important. Everybody, welcome to episode 43 of Life and Life Only. And we finally reached the end of the road in terms of these episodes about happiness or the Darren Brown book, Happy, Why More or Less Everything is Absolutely Fine. I'm going to go straight into it. We are 
looking at part four of the book, which starts with a chapter about fame. Now, just a very, very quick callback to the end of part three when we were talking about not envying people. That segues nicely into this section. I decided on four parts when I was planning this series, and I've left myself just slightly more than a quarter of the book. So it's worked out more or less okay. There will be some skimming, again, as usual, of certain parts, but I will mention them even if I don't read extracts from them. So, fame. I blame Mary Pickford. On the 24th of June 1916, the actress signed the first million-dollar film contract in history. Somewhere amidst the media interest provoked by this event, celebrity took a historic new turn. A star's potential earnings were unshackled from the pedestrian considerations of whatever efforts they were likely to expend. The old reasonable correlation between what and how one did and what one received for doing it became tenuous and in the upper reaches of showbiz, invisible. That quote actually comes from Richard Schickel's book, Intimate Strangers, The Culture of Celebrity in America. Or maybe we should look further back and highlight the first time that early public relations machinery purposefully created a sensation around a, quote, personality. In 1910, an actress with the overripe name of Florence Lawrence was reported to have died in a tram accident. Her producer, who had himself released the story, roundly and accurately decried it as a fake and arranged for a high-profile appearance of the star to much-staged extolment. Before these events, the private lives of actors and actresses were not a matter of public interest. There was no such thing as celebrity prior to the beginning of the 20th century, writes author and filmmaker Richard Schickel, rather boldly. Actors' lives and characters were only of interest to the extent that they served the films in which they appeared, and their perceived personalities were kept tightly in line with the sorts of characters they portrayed on screen. As a modern notion of a star developed from this early, more modest notion of a, quote, picture personality, picture is another name for a film, a motion picture, a power shift occurred in favour of the celebrated actors. They realised that the public might have an interest in them beyond the scope of their roles. At the same time, a media that had been hitherto eager to appear discreet and not overstep the bounds of good taste now created the popular gossip column. Very quickly, an industry of manipulated information and star creation was born. Today we are told that over half of our teenagers do not want a regular career, preferring instead to be famous. In a 2010 survey by The Independent, that's a newspaper in England, when young people were asked, what would you like to do for your career?, 54% answered, become a celebrity. More than a fifth said they aimed to achieve this through appearing on a TV reality show, and another 5% through dating someone famous. But nearly 70% of those who said they prioritised fame, when asked how they might achieve this goal, had no idea how to go about it. So there's a couple of early um, examples of fame. Mary Pickford was a silent Hollywood star before the talkies, as they're known, came in. This idea that he's talking about in that last paragraph is the idea of being famous, almost being a job. And then we get this phrase, which I don't know when it entered the culture 20 years ago, maybe famous for being famous. Definitely around the time of the millennium, it seems that reality TV took over. Reality TV started obviously with Big Brother and became a big thing. But I'm sure this existed before. I'm sure there were, in Asia, they call them HISO in Japan and also in Thailand and probably other countries. There are these high society people that are just revered. And um, if you remember, we did a two-parter about the Titanic at the end of last year. 
and uh, on the Titanic with these famous passengers, Guggenheim and uh, John Jacob Astor and um, Strauss and his wife, he founded Macy's and they died and they were, they were the celebrities, they were the rock stars of that era. So let's talk a little bit about fame. It's such a fascinating topic for me, but such an utterly absurd one, really, if you think about it. So let's imagine that you are someone who wants to become a musician and you're in a band and you've got three mates. Uh, I was going to call them Paul, George and Ringo, but they could be, I don't know, John, Wilf and Stuart. <laughs> doesn't matter who, what their names are. But let's just say they're just average, common names. And then suddenly uh, fame comes to you. And maybe it comes gradually, maybe it comes very, very quickly. And suddenly everyone is looking at your three mates, and you, of course, as you're completely elevated in everyone's eyes. And suddenly all your opinions are considered of interest. And it might be weird for you to experience it, but I think it would be even more... This we talked in the last part about this third person perspective where you would be a third person if you're looking at one of your mates who's suddenly, you know, one of the biggest rock stars in the world being interviewed by a, a journalist who's maybe fawning over him or her and all of your opinions would be, as I said, elevated. And uh, on one of my other podcasts, Glass Onion on John Lennon, in 2020 I did a discussion with a guy called Ben Rowling and he revealed, I didn't know this, that his cousin is uh, J.K. Rowling, obviously the author of the Harry Potter books. And he said it was funny that uh, when she became famous, for some reason people started asking her, among other things, about her opinion about the Beatles. And Ben is a hardcore Beatles fan. I don't know if that was the reason. And he said, he said you know, she, she was never interested in the Beatles. And suddenly her opinion of the Beatles is being elevated. And he, he didn't blame her, obviously, but it's this absolutely uh, absurd thing. I want to tell a story, it's a Darren Brown story, in fact, it's not from my personal experience, but it's something that Darren recounted in another of his books, Tricks of the Mind, which, uh, as you probably guess, would be more t to do with his magic side or mentalism, whichever one you want to call it. And he told this story, and I'll just paraphrase it. Basically, he was in a coffee shop, I think it was a coffee shop, and he maybe he got a phone call or something, and he was late for an appointment, and he rushed out the coffee shop, and as he was rushing out, there was a couple coming in and they said, oh, hi, Darren. You know, they didn't know him, but, you know, people are on first name terms, they feel, a lot of times with celebrities when they see them out and about. Oh, hi, Darren. And he ignored them. And he said in the book, you know, I felt a bit bad, but he said there's a fair chance, and bear in mind this is before social media, there's a fair chance that they might be annoyed at being snubbed. They might tell, I don't know, five people, those five people might go to the office next day if they work in an office, whatever their workplace, and they might pass on this information. Oh, D Darren Brown ignored my friends. Oh, these bloody celebrities. And that they might have all these generalised ideas about celebrities that are all confirmed. You know, it's what they call now confirmation bias. And then all those people might tell all their friends in the office. And it's quite conceivable that within, I don't know, a week or two weeks, it could be hundreds of people who all think that Darren Brown has his head up his ass and is a, doesn't care about the common person and all these ideas. Because I think as well as a, a, some weird need in the public to look up to celebrities, I think we also weirdly like it in a sense when we hear something negative about them because, it, like I say, it confirms some stereotype. It validates our lives or lessens the invalidation of our lives compared to them. It's a weird thing and I think the tabloids... The rise of the tabloids in the 20th century was massive in terms of what Darren was writing about there, about 
fame and uh, making up stories and the thing about building them up and then tearing them down. So I think the public maybe feed on that somehow and they have a strange relationship. They look up to celebrities but quite like it when they're taken down as well. It's very, very strange. I'll refer you back as well to Life and Life Only episode 40, the one about tennis, media and fame. So I had a few insights into it there. Now in the book, he talks about three categories of celebrity and I'll just go through them. First one is ascribed slash predetermined. So that would be royalty, for example. Especially nowadays, you know, you if you're born into the royal family, you're going to be a, a celebrity, whether you like it or not. Number two, achieved. So we could use tennis as an example, being in a rock group. Of course, it has changed a little bit. There's a famous story. Is it Mika? Miko? I think it's Mika. Was discovered uh, when he posted a video on the internet by Brian May, who said, that's the first person I've heard since Freddie Mercury died, who sounds like him or as good as him. It was something like that. So obviously with the rise of the internet, it is possible to be discovered. It's, it's made it both more likely and less likely because you're more likely in the sense that you could suddenly be discovered by Brian May or someone, but less likely because millions of other people can all do demos online and make albums online. But anyway, the, the point is having an achievement, so saying uh, Novak Djokovic is famous because of his tennis and not necessarily other stuff. And number three, attributed. And this is just because the media are interested in the person. So this is the famous for being famous, as I mentioned before. And I think the deal is really, if you can get enough people interested in what these people do, and crucially, of course, buy their products or buy products related to them, you know, there's always uh, hungry capitalists who are ready to pounce on um, any opportunity to make money. So if a person is basically... Uh, a money-making machine, both for themselves and for other people, they'll continue to be exposed, exposed in the sense of um, media exposure, not necessarily for something bad, but uh, they'll continually be uh, in our faces. And as soon as that goes on the wane, they might well disappear. I always, in a funny way, I know I never really wanted to go on Big Brother. I always envied them in a sense, because if you went on Big Brother, you would experience fame, especially, you know, if you did well in the competition, you got near the end of it, you'd make a bit of money, but really at any point you could disappear. I mean, I think someone like Jade Goody, he's probably the most famous Big Brother contestant ever in England anyway, of course came to a tragic end. I guess she chose to some extent to stay in the public eye and you can see people like, uh, I saw Ashleen on the show, there'd been a few Big Brother people talking about their experiences with Russell Brand because that's, as I'm recording this, that's... Uh, the hot news at the moment we always envied them that they could have a taste of fame make a bit of money and then disappear and they'd almost know as well how ridiculous it is they'd gain an insight into that as well it'd be quite a good life lesson i suppose the key emotion that attaches us to celebrities is desire we commonly want to be like them to sleep with them to possess them in some way because they're usually rich sexy and glamorous Brackets, so few of us tick all three boxes and still have time for our extensive charity work. They broadcast a message of, it is possible for people to succeed and have these things and this lifestyle. Thus, they continue to point the rest of the population in the direction of material aspirations. Celebrity serves as a helpful distraction from the material inequalities of real life. Thus, the famous are commonly used to promote products. The desire we attach to them is harnessed and attached to objects that keep the wheels of industry spinning at higher and higher speeds. At the same time, now that religion has lost its grasp on most of us, we have free-floating needs for intense attachment, powerful role models and immortal figures. 
our favourite stars, in brackets, the celestial implication of the word is not coincidental, focus that need rather well. In a secular and capitalist culture, our new gods are rock stars and actors. Fan sites operate as churches where the devoted come together and pour over every utterance of their idols. Individuals boast of or invent a personal relationship with the celebrity in question. Rival churches form as a large fan base splinters into separate and faintly hostile factions, each of which likes to believe that it is most favoured by its particular god and knows the correct way to carry out its secular form of worship. Stars are suitably distant to not disappoint us with their human traits and foibles and reach us only through the priesthood of PR, as public relations, and media machinery. Young, impressionable followers might fall into ecstatic states when they find themselves in the presence of those they worship, particularly at orchestrated quasi-religious events such as rock concerts. Meanwhile, the best examples of celebrity, like Elvis, can posthumously transfigure into something close to divine. Yeah, I mean, I can't put it any better than Darren's put it there. Yeah, worth thinking of the star, the idea of the star, because it's bright, endlessly bright in the sky. And... um, the idea of famous people taking over from gods in our far more secular world. And, yeah, the way people behave. I mean, um, I just recorded last week and put out an episode about 1963 with um, Ken McNabb talking about the Beatles and their rise to popularity because Ken's just written a book. And I was looking at some of the footage and it still blows me away that this look that the fans have in their eyes, it's, what's the word, frenzied I'd say I mean they just I don't know where that need quite comes from because I've never quite felt that same I mean I have strong feelings about John Lennon I have strong feelings about Marlon Brando I have strong feelings from afar perhaps when I was a teenager you know I did have posters of pop stars and rock stars on my wall the current ones of the day that would be the mid 80s and then I covered my wall with Beatles stuff as soon as they entered my life everything else disappeared for about two or three years but uh, the screaming and just, it feels like there's so many feelings to let out. And perhaps it was related to the war. There was post-war austerity and there was a feeling that everything was quite buttoned up in the 50s. But some people dispute that. Not everyone agrees with that. But yeah, there's this release of, I don't know, pressure. And um, I was on a show a while ago reviewing a film and uh, I think it was Hard Day's Night, wasn't it? A couple of years ago I was on a film podcast I was saying maybe fans are a bit more too cool for school these days. Maybe they don't have quite that frenzied reaction that they used to. But, you know, it's really bizarre. Now, another interesting section as part of this fame chapter is called Can't Complain. This is a difficult section to write because even as someone sort of famous in one tiny corner of the world, it is enormously churlish to express anything other than gratitude and bewilderment in the face of one's success. We are happy with famous people when they tell interviewers that they feel so extraordinarily lucky to be where they are and that they feel nothing but thankfulness to the fans who have got them there. We equally might enjoy the humility of a star who says she has a hard time dealing with some aspects of her success that feel to her undeserved, as long as she doesn't appear to whine about it. What we resolutely do not want to hear from her is what a pain it is to be hounded on the streets every day by fans to be unable to go shopping in the high street without people attracting attention to her. Oh, you poor thing, we can't help but think. Must be shit being you with all your money and adoration. Those people who got you where they are, do they want a photo? How fucking awful for you. Yes, we've all heard that, haven't we? 
the idea of the pampered celebrity complaining and we don't like it. No one wants to hear any of that. But I hope you'll bear with me if I try to describe the tangled reality of an experience that seems to hold an unshakable appeal for most people. Now, before I read the next chapter, I would say that Darren is in a good position because, as he said, he is quite famous in England, but I don't think he's ever had girls screaming at him. I mean, he came out as gay a few years ago. That doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, girls could still scream at him, but the point is that he's not mega famous, but he knows what it is to be known, to be a name. And, of course, he's he's pretty warmly regarded. I don't think anyone's really said i've never heard anything negative about him apart from (laughs) perhaps the fallout from that cafe story that i was saying earlier perhaps the only people that don't like him are those hundreds of people who heard that cafe story anyway i'll continue reading because celebrities are largely dangled before us as a vision of success and affluence and their perceived personalities managed through careful channels we're usually keen to know what famous people are actually like and any tidbit of information is treated as a profound insight and amplified beyond reason It's the first question I ask, and I suspect the vast majority of us do the same when a friend says they've met someone well-known. If stars are noticeably reluctant to have their photograph taken, don't stop for an autograph, or ignore having their name shouted in the street, then they are usually damned. They're not nice, or are up their own arse, or anywhere along that incriminating sliding scale. On the other hand, if they show some personal interest and don't play up to any sense of status, then they're utterly lovely, the nicest person you could meet. These two hasty conclusions, drawn from such a brief encounter, presumably arise from the pleasure of having any opinion about a famous person. That in itself is a measure of status denied to most people. Clearly it's more impressive to say, yep, I met Angelina Jolie, she's lovely, a very nice lady, than it is to say, I met her for a few moments but not long enough to form an opinion. She wasn't rude or anything, in fact she probably just acted the way she usually does when she meets people who want to say hello. Nothing I could really base an informed opinion on. <laughs> so I just stop again, just to say, can you imagine if you said that? And they said, oh, what are they like? What are they like? Uh, well, they're all right. Uh, I couldn't really judge. I uh, didn't talk to them long enough. Much nicer to use the language of knowing someone, which endows the speaker with a social cachet. Yeah, there's a certain type of uh, reflected glory in having anything to do with a celebrity. And yes, I'll admit, if someone said, oh, I worked for so-and-so, I'd be curious, but it wouldn't really go beyond that. I'd probably just say, oh, what were they like? I did have an American friend a few years ago in Spain, and she had rubbed shoulders with some quite famous people. I think she may have been doing PR or something where she she met a few celebrities. And she just name-checked a few and asked what they were like. And a lot of them were quite the opposite of what you think. So she met Grace Jones and said she was lovely. Again, you know, not enough to form an opinion on, but she'd spent couple of days with her not intensely but being around her and said oh she didn't really remember any diva behavior lou reed was another one she said oh he was great and then she told a really funny story she used to go in this bar in new york that was frequented by celebrities and robert de niro let me just pause for a sec if if you love robert de niro you might not like to hear this it's not a terrible story it's quite funny actually robert de niro would apparently appear just before happy hour and start ordering drinks, loads and loads of drinks, just before happy hour ended, and occasionally get angry if he was a couple of minutes too late. That's quite funny. Robert De Niro, of course, we would think of as just mega, mega rich, but he's had tax problems for years, so so maybe that was a reason. But uh, there is a curiosity, uh, I'll admit. But I think there's a difference between that and basing your whole existence on another person. 
I suppose I contradict that. When I was young, I have said this before, I, I based a lot of what I did on John Lennon, so I, I am guilty of it. But I think maybe, I don't know, if this doesn't sound too patronising, past a certain age, you would, should probably stop that. And, you know, you're starting to form your own uh, identity outside of celebrities. So carrying on, because we like to form these opinions quite robustly, most famous people are careful to speak about fans in nothing but the most glowing terms. Any suggestion that a celebrity feels that his or her public can also be tiresome is likely to be hysterically amplified by the media. The immediate comeback from an insulted, indignant public to any such comment or insinuation from a celebrity tends to run along the following two lines. Number one, is your fans that have got you where you are. Number two, if you don't like it, why are you being a big famous star? Don't court adoration and then whinge when you get it. There is some idea of a relationship between the tabloid media and the star but it's most likely going to be the star's PR machinery they will collude in terms of almost setting up scandals and they'll say oh the celebrity will be here at this particular moment at this particular time they'll be in this nightclub tonight and they might come out of it with their arm around uh, Paris Hilton or someone some uh, it girl that was another thing they used to call them it girls in terms of fame I can't recommend enough Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant's series extras a lot of people don't rate it as much as the office but on further viewings i actually think it's equally as good just really really good insights particularly the christmas special which is the one where andy millman who's ricky's character becomes famous himself after chasing it for a while we see how it changes him and how um he's still got the same amount of problems but they're just different problems Carrying on, these are very natural responses. However, in having them, we have switched off any empathic understanding. This is easy to do because the rich and famous may not, we feel, deserve our empathy. Our objections are made angrily because we feel slighted. We imagine that we might meet this person and she would be rude to our face, and this imaginary insult upsets us. It's confusing. We're used to loving an actress in her roles and now hear that we wouldn't like her if we met her in real life. We emotionally invest in our stars and can become very sensitive to our affection not being reciprocated. Another revelation I came to, I sort of realised I'd done this, is that I think we also think of celebrities as being innately wise because they have probably been to more places than we've been to. And if they're actors and actresses, they may have plumbed depths of the soul, you know, of maybe dark human behaviour. If you think of, I don't know, Liam Neeson playing Oscar Schindler, you might meet Liam Neeson and think, oh, he's played that role, you know, he he was involved in, he studied the, the Holocaust and things like that. He must have a depth of knowledge that I can't even believe, you know, and I think it's just an innate thing that stars are pushed on us as being all-knowing. And often it's not from anything they say or do, It's it's just an aura that is really created around them so he carries on talking about this emotional investment just as in love we create an image of these people based entirely on projection which has nothing to do with who they really are though unlike a lover a public figure consciously courts this kind of image conjuring on our part and then we are horrified and we find that our investment and affection are misplaced we have without realizing made ourselves vulnerable in the face of this famous person proof of this is demonstrated by how blatheringly incompetent we become when we meet them face to face and how we censure ourselves for a month after, usually in the early hours while the rest of the world sleeps blamelessly, about how we so obviously uttered the worst thing imaginable upon meeting them. 
The problem then is not the star being ungrateful towards fans, but that we are experiencing disappointment and even, at a deeper level, the rumblings of abandonment. When little bits of our world crumble, and this happens when we fear someone we love may not love us back, we feel exposed and scared and commonly express our fear as anger or hurt. And I've got nothing to add to that because I can't put it any better than Darren puts it there. Darren now details some of his experience of fame. So I'm going to read... uh, some of this stuff because he's very good at this kind of thing i mean there's some fabulous writing all the way through this book but like i said because he's in this mid-level fame range he's still in touch with both sides i'm sure he's rubbed shoulders with some very famous people but he's still retained uh, i suppose his ordinariness so this is a subheading being famous The overwhelming and blistering point I would like to make is that, aside from perhaps a few very rare cases, fame does not make you happy. Some of its aspects are, of course, very agreeable. Others are very unpleasant. The appeal, though, surely comes from imagining a very intense and exciting elevation of ordinary life. Perhaps when we think about being famous, we might imagine a whirlwind of paparazzi, red carpets and autograph hunters, the public picture of fame, which won't ever correlate with our private experience. Intensity is a very appealing thing and we search for it in many places in life. We need to find experiences of intensity in our lives, but ideally such exposure wouldn't come at the expense of what's good for us. We imagine that intensity from outside a bubble looking in. Our perspective fails to take into account a major point. Once we're inside, once we're famous, it's still us looking back out. It's in some ways like that dream holiday. It's much less dreamy once we've arrived and realise we brought ourselves with us. The person being photographed and lauded, for all the trappings of success, is still us. If we are dissatisfied in our lives, which is a given if we strongly wish to be famous, then we will still be prone to dissatisfaction when famous. If we are fundamentally seeking some sense of accomplishment, that need probably won't go away. And it's very interesting there, as he said, to compare it with going on a dream holiday, or perhaps winning the lottery. Arguably, if you're in... The middle class in the West, you've already won life's lottery if you actually compare yourselves to how the majority of people in the world live. But staying within our sphere, let's say, imagine you win the lottery. Okay, you wake up the next morning, you're absolutely buzzing and you get to ring up your boss. Maybe you like your boss, maybe you don't. If you don't like your boss, you'll probably have some wonderfully elevating and uh, experience of getting stuff off your chest and probably telling your boss to F off. But you'll, if you have a good relationship with your boss or with your company, you'll ring up and say, you probably heard I won the lottery. Um, I won't be coming into work on Monday. And then you might spend a few minutes doing cartwheels around your house. Whatever you'll be, do- you'll be doing, you'll feel liberated and free. But then I would say within a remarkably short amount of time, that would become your normality just as being rich and famous becomes a normality. And you realise that you still have the same niggles. You know, your back might still ache. Yes, you've got time now to do more back exercises. That's a good analogy, actually. And hire a personal trainer. Let's say you wanted to get fit. Let's say you're overweight, maybe even obese, and you win the lottery. You've got the time and you've got the money to make it happen that you slim down and you get you get down to a weight that you're happy with. You've still got to make the effort. And if you won the lottery, you might become more lazy. So you're less likely. So just take that as one little example of how winning the lottery or becoming rich and famous wouldn't automatically make you happy. There'd be a a buzz. It'd be like a drug, you know. 
take a drug, you feel a buzz, then there's a crash, and then you return to some middle level. And as he said, it's not the same for everyone. There are people that manage fame extremely well. Again, I'd say it's probably more the mid-level Darren Brown level of fame, which is the best one. When we talk about money in a previous part of uh, this series, I was saying, you know, I should envy mid-level tennis players or footballers because they're, they're being very well rewarded, but they don't have this constant intrusion. Because the thing he was talking about um, being shouted stuff in the street, if you think about it, for example, John Cleese was obviously in Monty Python and one of the most famous Monty Python sketches, The Ministry of Silly Walks, which is exactly what it says. And he happened to not like that sketch or didn't think it had aged particularly well. And he said for years people just would people would see him in the street and go, John, and do it, start doing a silly walk. And he was expected to laugh along with it. Now, if you imagine that happening 100, 200, 300 times, it's not to have sympathy for John Cleese or anyone else in that situation or Steve Coogan, people shouting, aha, to him just for months and years. You know, it would get annoying and it would be difficult to laugh along with it just because it's boring, you know, it's tiresome. And Darren used the word tiresome with it. Famous people are not allowed to say that it actually gets really boring. Just wanted to mention um, another thing. Uh, mention John Lennon again. He said, I'm only famous because of my repression. That was one of his quotes that was in the anthology book. I think it's the one that started the anthology book, in fact. He had a troubled childhood, and his idea, in a nutshell, was that a lot of people that become famous, they have a stronger need to be loved. It's a substitute love. It's the love of the crowd to replace the lack of love from parents, maybe parents who've abandoned you who have died. There's something in that. It's a little too simple, but there's something in it. Let's carry on. Probably most performers do have that desire for fame, and many are ruined by success. If you unconsciously think that more money or more exposure will make you happier because it will bring you higher status, then you are basing your idea of happiness on what other people feel. Whilst being appreciated by other people is a pleasant part of life, it's also something we have ultimately no control over and no clear or stable reference point to let us know we have achieved it. Likewise, fame is usually fleeting and if a person feels a need to achieve it in the first place, that desire will only grow more neurotic as he or she struggles to keep hold of it. Other performers quickly become rivals and witnessing their increasing success can lead to the most horrendous bitterness. A few magicians I know have been rendered intolerable by resentment after finding themselves hugely celebrated in the magic world, but unable to make an impact on the wider public. I can only imagine it's a widespread experience. Life can become a frantic chase after something that does not exist, a pursuit that can only be sustained by a refusal to confront important questions about yourself. The celebrity certainly has in place a very effective distraction from looking carefully at deeper personal issues. He has another self that purports to be at least as real as his true self. One successful British performer told me that she realised her need to act in Hollywood films was born of a desire to fulfil an image of success that was expected of her by others. Not surprisingly, this need for greater intensity, when coupled with a disorientating detachment from one's true self, can pave the way to addiction problems as it did with her. Meanwhile, a recent television show has focused on the stories of pop group members who were thrust into the limelight, promised fame and riches, then dumped overnight. It's heartbreaking to hear their tales of subsequent descent into drug addiction, severe depression, even prostitution. Worse, 
Theirs is precisely the sort of instant recognition to which most fame-hungry young people seem attracted. Just wanted to give you a little example of how creating this alter ego, as he said, this other self, how that could work. So years and years ago, when I started um, writing in my early 20s, I was just doing it as I have done through the years. It's just quite a therapeutic thing, and I, I just write every now and again. I started a blog and so forth. And I thought about trying to write a film, which I never actually did. And someone said to me, or I read it in a, a book about how to write film scripts and so forth. They said, you want to create a character. People always say, write about what you know. Create a character that's similar to you, but has got more confidence and more energy. <laughs> and in a sense, this conforms to what Darren was saying, that we expect our celebrities to have boundless energy and boundless confidence even though we know that they have insecurities. We know deep down. Now, I've never been famous, okay? I've got a tiny, tiny bit of fame, if you like. It's not even that, really, from my podcast. And I get asked on to podcast as a guest. And, uh, you know, some people know my name, but I'm not famous and I never have been. But when I was um, a musician and making, I suppose, a half-hearted attempt to make it as a musician in my 20s, I created a character called Eden Roberts, and I used to perform as Eden Roberts. And I even put a few things online before I changed it back to my own name in, in the last few years. Because I always thought Anthony Rotuno is not a snappy name. Someone once said to me it would be a good name for an author. So if you write a book, put it under your own name. But I wanted a snappy name like John Lennon, Mick Jagger. So I created Eden Roberts. And it has a snappy, I feel it's a snappier name. And also I went to drama school. And one exercise you do in drama school, if you're about to play a character in a play, you can go out in the evening or go to go and have a pint or go to a cafe or something and be that person. So I used to be Eden Roberts. If I was going out in public, I was just going to meet someone and I knew I'd probably never meet them again. I'd say, oh, hi, I'm Eden. And I'd behave like Eden Roberts. And what would happen is it would be 95% me, but it would have this extra 5% where I was a bit liberated and I suddenly didn't have Anthony's insecurities and lack of energy or lack of confidence that inevitably happens with everyone. I could be Eden and I was still being myself, but I used to, just for fun, I used to create backstories for myself. And it was, it was fun. Like when I went um, backpacking in my early 20s, myself and an American guy I met, we clicked very well. We were both musicians. We both had our guitars with us. And for a laugh, we... we Every time we'd meet some new backpackers that we were pretty sure, if we were just staying at one place for one evening or two evenings, we were pretty sure we weren't going to see them again. We'd just make up stories. It's a creative thing, you know, it wasn't doing any harm. But it was interesting that I, in having that alter ego, it did free me a little bit. So someone like Paul McCartney, he says, you know, there's that other Paul McCartney and then there's me. But crucially, of course, it doesn't have a different name, which makes it a little bit different. But I guess it, at some point, like I said, I've never actually been famous, but if I was, I wonder whether that would just become just a burden and the the line between Eden Roberts and Andy Rotuno would get blurred, you know, or between uh, one Paul McCartney, the public Paul McCartney, and uh, Paul as he is to his mates. Right, now we get to a section called Being Rich. You may object, okay, but the money. Maybe fame won't make me any happier, but I'd love to be richer. Indeed, becoming richer does tend to make you happier, but only to the point of being financially comfortable. There is, as we've discussed, a yearly salary figure 
up to which people report themselves as incrementally happier. The amount depends on the cost of living, but importantly, when people earn higher than that comfortable figure, they don't continue to grow happier. Again, we indirectly find happiness in the absence of a stressor, money troubles, not in the having of something. In a sense, much of this book concerns the value of understanding that distinction. We're switching our focus to removing needless frustrations, not chasing happiness. The belief that we would be extremely happy if we were extremely rich is so widespread that it's worth repeating. After the point of being financially comfortable, more money does not make you happier. And he puts that in italics. Same way he put in italics, being famous doesn't make you happy. Money constitutes a relationship, and like any relationship, we need a certain amount of mindfulness in place to get it right. And mindfulness is something that will come up later towards the end of the book. But yes, I mean, I, I've realised this myself. I mean, if you're a footballer, say you're Lionel Messi or Ronaldo or any of those people, Mbappe, let's be honest. Okay, so if you earned £10,000, euros, whatever it is, a week, that is extremely comfortable existence. Okay, then you've got endorsements and you've got people telling you we can make more money as you saw with Emma Raducanu in episode 40. But then think about if you're making a million euros a month or whatever they're making. It's probably even more than that, isn't it, with the top guys. What would that actually mean? What would those extra zeros mean? Especially, I mean, I don't, I don't imagine that Harry Kane or Mbappe or any of these people have ever looked into the history of money and what money actually is. But nowadays, because it's not backed by gold and most money is digital. They did a survey and found 97% of money in the British economy is digital. It's actually just figures on a screen, and it becomes just more and more zeros. You know, And that's not going to make you any happier. Come on. You know, it's ridiculous to think that. So I'm totally on with uh, Darren on this. Up to a certain point, as you said, you're releasing a pressure. You're getting rid of a negative thing. It's not necessarily creating something positive. You know, it's positive in the sense that it's eliminating a negative, but uh, it's it's better to think of, oh, I'm I'm comfortable, or it's removing a source of stress, rather than creating something wonderful in my life. Now, you can do wonderful things with money, of course. I think a lot of it all comes down to how mentally stable you are and how secure or insecure you are, and we'll see that with a a famous example of a a singer who died at 27 you can probably guess who that is a british singer so darren continues a better strategy is to treat fame and riches as pleasant side effects it might seem trite to stress the benefits of doing what one loves for a living but for all the reasons given in this book it works if you're lucky or dedicated enough to find your way there in my 20s i enjoyed nothing more than crossing the clifton suspension bridge in bristol and walking through the fields of ashton court dreaming up magic tricks as long as my life could continue roughly in that vein, it seemed to me I would remain very content. Of course one grows up and these priorities change, but not as much as one might imagine. I wished to spend my career performing magic or doing something that would bring me a similar amount of freedom and pleasure, and I'd reached a point where that desire was achievable and being lived out every day. I didn't know of Epictetus then, and I wasn't aware that I was aligning myself with his formula, yet my concerns are really only about my thoughts and actions the things I could control. Money, fame and success exist on the other side of that line in the realm of external indifference. Nice to have, but outside of your jurisdiction. They may be rewarding byproducts, but they will never prove gratifying if they are chased directly. 
When we focus instead on the activities we love and how we might tap into a market which will always exist for someone who does something well, we keep our attention where it belongs, on the development of our talent and the energy we put into it. Now you see lots of um, TV shows and films and books and so forth where people hanker for those innocent days. You know, If you see a, a rock band or something, getting to bring up the Beatles, why not? I'm steeped in Beatle land at all times really. There's a Beatles documentary where Ringo Starr is on tour in 1966, which was the year that the Beatles quit touring and they were having bad experiences left, right and centre. Ringo said to one of the support acts, you know, to be honest, I'd rather be down the pub with my dad having a pint than doing this. This is bullshit. There is an innocence. Obviously, what we'd like really is to have that middle ground, which arguably Darren occupies. He's pretty rich. He's pretty famous. Uh, I'm repeating myself and I'm saying he hasn't changed that much. Of course, there's a rose-tinted spectacles idea of the past as well. It's very difficult to have accurate memories, yeah, because memory is a fallible thing. Now, Darren then references a book called How to Worry Less About Money, and the idea that, I think I just read about, that money is a relationship that needs to be worked on like any relationship, like a romantic relationship. I don't think many people think about that as, yeah, we know money is in our life, and um, but do we think of it as being a relationship that can have rewards and uh, stresses. Okay, carrying on. When a person decides to give up cigarettes, he is well advised to pay attention to the reasons he has for smoking. These will be well placed. Smoking provides a means for relaxation, a way of rounding off a meal. It's something to do with the hands. It used to offer a subtle way of detaching in a social situation. Or at least it did when the smoker could puff out a literal smoke screen at a pub table between him and his companions. Today it offers fresh air, I think that's meant ironically, a means of social connection and hiatus from the rat race in the form of the backdoor smoking break. These are all noble and important needs to which we should attend, and a non-smoker will usually have varied means for catering to them. To cut out cigarettes without looking for other ways of placating these requirements is going to make giving up very stressful. Now what he's been talking about the benefits of smoking, obviously he's talking about to the smoker. And you might say that smokers, like anyone in addiction, have been brainwashed into that. I'd recommend Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking. And just one other thing about um, the way that smoking is being cleverly marketed as something that's cool. Rory Sutherland's TED Talk. There's two, Perspective is Everything and Life Lessons of an Ad Man. I'll put them in the show notes. They're absolutely fantastic. He's a really good speaker. And I think at the beginning of one of them, he says... um, if you're at a party and you go outside and you're staring at the night sky, you're staring at the sky wistfully, people might think you're a bit of a weirdo. If you do that and you've got a cigarette in your hand, you're a fucking philosopher. <laughs> yeah, it's very good marketing. But that, that wasn't the point. Darren's saying we need to think about why. So likewise with money, whenever something holds our attention in such a secure but misplaced way... We should pay attention to the needs behind its magnetic attraction. And the core reasons why we are drawn to money resonate far deeper than the requisites of a smoker. Looking past immediate and specific money troubles, the fantasy of wealth promises to change our lives for the better. The desire to transform into an improved version of ourselves is a valid and admirable urge to which we should all pay more attention. Money, however, is not a very effective means of securing the kind of improvement we truly seek. It too easily brings out the worst in us, and the acquirement of it can prove too distracting and empty a goal. 
Wealth also seems to offer a means of elevating oneself above the parochial troubles of the ordinary and everyday and to connect with something larger and more exciting. If we don't go to church, or even if we do, we may never find a means of incorporating wonder and largeness in our lives. In our modern age, so sceptical of myths or mystery, people still flock to psychics and cheap New Age spirituality because they seem to offer a tawdry resemblance of transcendence. These urges to transform ourselves and connect with something larger than our familiar humdrum lives are primal longings to which religion once effectively paid heed. Today these cries from the soul go largely unheard, hence we understandably attach them to the accumulation of wealth. Rather than daydream of riches, or sneer enviously at media reports of strikingly young cyber billionaires, however, we could acknowledge that such impotent activities arise from valid and noble cravings to improve ourselves and connect to a feeling of largeness. Opportunities may then present themselves for us to quietly inquire within as to how those needs might be more effectively honoured and met. Oh, that's good stuff. So as I said, money and fame, they do give access and they do lead to opportunities, but we need to pay attention to maybe what we need. I mean, we all have shallow needs or needs for shallow pleasures there's nothing inherently wrong with that but uh, I think with everything you know I, obviously I advocate a bit of soul searching I think we should all be doing that now another subheading here being loved like the accumulation of money or reputation being loved by people you don't know or are unlikely to meet is best treated as a side effect of doing what you enjoy it is, however, such a profoundly touching and universally shared human requirement that we would do well to remember that it lingers behind many of the strange behaviours of the famous and connects all of us to such apparent weirdness. I've said it's unfair to presume that famous people are primarily interested in attention-seeking at a conscious level, when creative fulfilment, let alone earning potential, can play powerful roles too. Yet we can also, in the same breath, acknowledge the need to be loved as a more or less unconscious factor in their and many high flyers' careers, a need which all of us share at some level. When we appreciate that, we dispense with the cynicism we like to reserve for the highly successful and realise that we all come from similarly frightened and lonely places. I was saying earlier about John Lennon saying he was famous because of his repression. And I think it's true to say, as a general thing, performers do tend to be quite sensitive souls. I mean, when I was in Madrid and I was around this group of performers it, it was an incredible experience really I mean it was as Shakespeare might have said the best and worst of times you know the, there were examples of people that were extraordinarily sensitive and I realized that I was kind of like that as well I think it's something you can work on there's nothing wrong with being sensitive but I think we need a thick skin you may have heard of Nick Drake and of course we did some podcasts about him on Life and Life Only his sister Gabrielle who's an actress she said to survive as a, an artist in the broad sense, you need to have the thin skin of a poet to access the feelings, you know, to be able to, to act or to write or whatever you're doing. But then you need a thick skin to deal with life and the business. You know, if there's anyone famous listening to this or anyone who's entering that field like music or acting, that's something to bear in mind. Another quick recommendation Psychology in Seattle is a podcast that I recommend and Kirk and Umberto from that podcast they were on Glass Onion a few years ago talking about John Lennon's psychology they did a good episode on Amy Winehouse if it's still online I'll put it in the show notes carrying on 
The private self is not honoured in our culture as it once was. We knew little of the personal lives of old Hollywood stars, and that was part of their appeal. Today the media invade and tap into our email and phone conversations, and reality stars attempt to display every facet of their lives in a seeming attempt to dissolve without remain into an entirely public sphere. The private life, in inverted commas, of a public figure has come to mean something sinister, something synonymous with dirty secrets and having something to hide. Part of our dislike of hearing that a celebrity avoids her fans or didn't allow a photograph to be taken comes from our poor tolerance of contradiction and ambiguity. We want them to behave at all times how we would expect from their performances and a lingering distrust of the very notion of the private realm. And thus the experience of being famous, like that of being human, is most unpleasant when one cannot retreat to that private inner space or finds it violated. So I suppose my thing I would say to you, if you ever want to be famous if you're chasing fame for the sake of it just think about having no private life about never being able to dissolve into as you said that private self all that being said i find the experience of being known generally quite pleasant most people are respectful and friendly and it's up to me whether i focus on the positive or negative aspects meanwhile it remains wrong to complain however double-edged the experience may be consider the experience of people wanting a photograph with you when you're out and about how innocuous and flattering to imagine that someone might want a quick snap with you and how ungracious to suggest it could be anything less. And then he details how um, you have a photo with somebody and then someone else spots you and then maybe they want a photo. And before you know it, there's a crowd. He says uh, another couple has clocked you and now they're getting their cameras ready for a photo. And this is what happens. And it used to be more autographs. Maybe selfies and things have replaced autographs. I guess autographs are still um, sought. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I'm not going to read all of this, but he uh, gradually escalates. And he says, throughout, you desperately want to give these people a nice experience of meeting you. At the same time, you don't want to draw a small crowd and suddenly be the centre of attention when you're just out trying to buy some plasters. It's hard to know what to do. Of course, when asked for a photo, you can never say no. He wouldn't let me take a photo. It's less than a second. What a dick. Neither can you decline and offer an explanation. What can you say? It'll draw attention and other people will probably want one too. And it becomes difficult to get away or carry on having my lunch without feeling horribly self-conscious. How to deal with this situation is a popular discussion point and people will find their own strategies. So what what would you do in that situation and and how long would it take before you found this kind of intrusion annoying? I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. For what it's worth, my advice to anyone in the position of frequently having his or her photograph taken in public is to take a breath and consciously decide to embrace and enjoy it in the moment. It's pointless trying to explain to someone why, with the best will in the world, it can draw attention you'd rather not have. And of course that irritation is only a consequence of your internal judgment. Take the phone from them and snap the picture yourself. You can take the photograph far more quickly and discreetly, and if you wish, focus the interaction on a pleasant conversation instead. Perhaps ask if the photo might be taken round a corner, rather than in full view of passers-by. Refuse if you feel strongly, of course. Plenty of celebrities do, and they remain much loved. But above all, to resent the request is, I think, simply a mistake. So he's highlighting there the need for celebrities if they want something of an easy life or an uncomplicated life that you don't want to get the public against you. I'd say the public and the tabloid media are the two entities that you 
don't want to upset too much because your life can become hell, I think. I focused on some of the more negative everyday aspects of the relationship between the famous and the public. I confess I've crossed roads and pretended to be on my phone more than my fair share of times. But for me, the best consequence of having a little fame is that a lot of people seem to have decided they like me before I meet them. That's a very nice thing. Friendships usually need time and a certain environment in which to flourish, and for many adults it's not easy to find either of those things. Being well-known cuts through a lot of that, and much of the work is already done. Lovely as it can be to feel loved, I'm aware that others will hate me for no reason other than that they object to my work, face, or find me violently revolting in some vague but powerful way. I try to be as minimally annoying as possible by declining panel shows and only rarely, and when utterly obliged to, doing TV interviews. I don't emerge much in the press unless it relates to a specific project, though tabloids sometimes run or threaten to run stories that they know aren't true, but serve the shit-stirring intuitions of their editors. I generally have an easy time with the media, partly because I don't court them in the way some others do. A story broke the other day about a member of a famous boy band smoking a joint on a car journey. Of course the band has to present a careful image to their young fans, but a backseat tote caught on camera does no damage at all to anyone unless the media draw hysterical attention to it. And that puts me in mind of Michael Phelps, who's a multiple Olympian in swimming. He was pictured having a bong at a party. And I mean, what harm is that doing? He's just letting off a bit of steam. I mean, the guy used to swim three or four hours a day in training. And as I mentioned in the tennis episode, you can imagine how boring that would get after a while. But yeah, it's his job. But he's not doing any harm just going to a private party and smoking a bong. The fact that someone took a photo just to make money. I mean, that's that's on them, not him. Now he talks about... Um, the fact that Julia Roberts played a character called Anna Scott in the film Notting Hill. Darren says, Were the real Roberts ever to be heard to complain in the same way as her character does, we would sneer and scoff, as if the rich and famous had forfeited any claim to real concerns. It might serve us better to take comfort in the fact that the gods are mortal after all, that they and we are in fact more similar than we imagine, that we would most likely do the same strange things if we found ourselves in their position that our own insecurities might be exaggerated, not eliminated by fame. Stephen Fry said that the best attitude to the drawbacks of fame is to treat them like wasps at a picnic. No matter how nice the picnic, there will be wasps in the form of intrusive press or disturbed fans. These are analogous to Marcus Aurelius's cuttings on the workshop floor, an inevitable byproduct of life. Such balancing analogies help. Now, I mentioned earlier... Um, a singer who died at 27. Asif Kabadia's documentary Amy charts the journey of Amy Winehouse, amply illustrating the mutually destructive forces of the media and machinations of fame on the one hand and a plaintive troubled soul on the other. Buzzwords like troubled and tragic abounded during her life and after her death, as do words like story and journey now that she's gone and supposedly left us a moral lesson. These are all reductive words that allow us to tidy up and make sense of something that could not be fairly reduced in real life. Tidy narratives are things we choose to apply. Meanwhile, experience is messy and active and not reducible to these clean nouns and designations. Moralising is our attempt to distract from something complicated and painful in order to make it appear manageable, so that we can avoid feeling uncomfortably challenged. Witness how the culpable media quickly turn to preaching in such cases in order to shirk their measure of responsibility. 
There may be lessons for us, but they are not the head-shaking moral sermons delivered by the casually appalled. So I mentioned that podcast about Amy Winehouse, and obviously that Netflix documentary, Amy, is... I mean, it's a, it's a sad story, of course, rather like the Elvis story, but uh, it's also a good documentary, and it gives you a real insight into how this kind of story plays out. And of course it will play out a million times. Everyone will say, oh, poor Amy, we wish we'd helped her, but there are plenty of people who do exactly the same thing again. And I'm mostly talking about the tabloid media there. I hope I've made the point that all the benefits one might imagine have their distinct disadvantages. Fame does not make you happier. Instead, the nice things get nicer and the nasty things get far worse. The experience of fame is primarily one of widening the extremes between what is enjoyable and what is unpleasant, which does little to affect happiness. So uh, Stephen Fry did a documentary about bipolarity, which is a, a more modern term for manic depression. And he was talking about, there's a saying in Hollywood, it's something like, you don't have to be gay or Jewish, you have to be bipolar. And what he said there really is that your experience of fame is basically like the moods of a person with bipolar. The ups are higher and the downs are lower. I think that's a very good summing up of this section. I'm not going to read any more about fame, except just to quickly say that according to Darren, the secret magical formula for success is talent plus energy. And the formula for being a star is style plus attitude. So I don't know if he's making a specific point there. Perhaps he's saying that style and attitude are more superficial things, but talent and energy are uh, more real, perhaps. There is actually just one more section, sorry, in, in this about fame. If you're anxious, you're fixating on the uncertainties of the future, focusing not on desired fame, but on your developing talent and energy now will keep you rooted in the present and allow you to be open to opportunities without obsessing over where they might lead. And this is basically advice for performers. You've chosen a job path that has a potential to offer great happiness, but this can only come from the experience of the journey, which, being in the areas of your talent and energy, is thankfully under your control, and not from the destination, which is unknown, ill-defined, and forever moving further away from you. Honour that potential by not confusing fulfilment and fame. The two look similar, but are not related. You will have to treat fame very lightly if you secure it, so you'd be well advised to start doing that now, because there's no clear moment when it suddenly arrives. This all keeps your centre of gravity within yourself. Now we get to a very long section. I mean, this book is divided into parts, which are then divided into chapters, which are then divided into headings. There's a part which is called Happy Endings, and this is all about death. There's a lot to read. and I mean, I can't read everything in this book about why death is not a morbid subject but it it really isn't it depends how you approach it if you're interested um in the details of death then i would say that's morbid and a little bit strange and voyeuristic it's the same as if you're interested in criminology as i am i'm fascinated by the area of crime but i'm not really particularly interested in the details of gruesome crimes it's much more about the psychology of it and how society deals with it those kind of things death is a fact and i think there's a humbling quality to thinking about death. In a similar way, perhaps, to thinking about the cosmos. And I'll put in the show notes a video called The Universe is Way Bigger Than You Think. And when you watch it, you'll realise how terribly tiny you are. But in a good way, I believe. If you're a very insecure person who's looking for status, as we've detailed ad nauseum in the, in the fame section of this, 
then you probably might not be comfortable with that thought. But I think as most people get older and they broaden their horizons, they widen their perspective, I think it's wonderfully therapeutic. And if you watch this space video, and if you think about how many people have existed as well in the world on that tiny blue dot called Earth, there's a famous picture, isn't there, taken from space of the Earth, and it's this tiny blue dot. And there's a famous Carl Sagan quote that I don't have to hand, but it's something about all the things that have ever happened, you know, all the all the greatest and the worst people and all the best and the worst actions. That's not what he said, but I'm paraphrasing. Have all happened on that tiny blue dot. So it's worth it to think that, you know, we are so, 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 so tiny. And our one life is so tiny in the context of all the other lives. And death is bigger than us. When I go on train journeys, one thing I like to do is I look out the window and all these houses flash by. And I think in all those houses, there are lives being lived and there's dramas and there's stuff I'm never going to know about. And it's fascinating to me that we can all be, we're all at the centre of our own little drama. You know, maybe life is a tragic comedy, as some people have said, but I think it's also can be a drama. And a lot of us make things dramatic that don't need to be. But, uh, yeah, I think of those lives and those dreams and yours is just one of hundreds of those lives you see in in a five-minute train journey. So Darren says, Only you carry your story in the world and it must vanish with you. As a novelist, Milan Kundera phrased it, What terrifies most about death is not the loss of the future, but the loss of the past. In fact, the act of forgetting is a form of death always present within life. Milan Kundra wrote, among other books, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Very, very good book. And they made a pretty good film about it as well. Such is the finality of death. So how could that possibly help us or allow us to find happiness? And this is one of the things that he goes through in this section. And there's a quite a large section of the book. It's a chapter of the book devoted to a woman called Deborah. Darren was contacted by her. and She had cancer and had been the victim of uh, what Darren calls extraordinary medical negligence. Now, I can't read Jerry Pickpitt to the story, so I'm just going to leave it with you if, you if you decide to buy and read this book. But, I mean, it is quite a story. I'm just going to quote the words of Deborah and also Philip Gould, who has a short film that Darren recommends on YouTube called When I Die, Lessons from the Death Zone. So going forward a little bit. So this is Deborah. Speaking of living with an impending death, she says, As time and my illness have progressed, I now regard a terminal illness as a weird kind of privilege. Unlike the swift, brutal finality of a heart attack or road traffic accident, I've been granted the honour to plan and prepare both myself and my family for what is to come. And this is Philip Gould. I certainly do not think that a sudden, unexpected death, dropping dead, as they say, would be better than what confronts me. You would lose so much. Of course it would be nice to avoid confronting death, nice to blunt that sharp edge, and you would avoid a lot of pain, I suppose. But I think those things are far outweighed by the things you gain from knowing that you're going to die and having the chance to act on that knowledge. So just reflecting on those two short quotes, I mean, you really do need to read about Deborah and perhaps watch uh, Philip Gould's video to fully understand that, because it might seem a bit shocking for her to say that a long drawn-out death is some kind of privilege. You know, that's her perspective after experiencing that i mean a long drawn out death from cancer let's say or or aids it doesn't sound great because it's a it's an onslaught of pain and suffering i would personally like to go quickly but then i can see the other side then that 
your life is suddenly snuffed out. I think it's whether, I think to be honest, I'm going to say this to you now, because this podcast is an opportunity for me to say things like this. Okay, I'm 48 years old. I concluded recently, because I'm now back in England, probably forever, I, I may well go abroad with my parents pass on I'm in this position where I'm the unmarried one of the family and I'm I wouldn't say I'm looking after my parents because they're pretty good at looking after themselves but they are reaching that age where they might need help in the next few years from my personal perspective I have pretty much done everything I've ever wanted to do I've been to quite a lot of places I haven't been everywhere but I don't really even like traveling anymore I went to Liverpool in August I was away for three days and I enjoyed it but when I came home I was so pleased to get home having had a nice few days in a city I really love. But I've done everything I've ever wanted to do. So if I was told that I had three months to live, it's difficult to say. When you get the news, your perspective might change. But as of now, I don't really feel like there's anything else I want to do. So I wouldn't be too upset. I've already made my peace with myself. I've spent 10, 15 years on this self-development journey, learning about myself and learning about the world. And that's what Life and Life Only has obviously been about, inner and outer truth, those two strands that, I've found a way of connecting. So I don't, I don't really feel like I would need a, a long drawn out illness to reconcile my life. I've, I've already done that in a sense. And in a funny way, when I'm in a negative mood, I kind of think, what am I doing? All I'm doing is occupying space. You know, I'm still reading, I'm still doing these podcasts, but I wonder what I'm doing them for. Maybe it's just to be able to say things like this. You know, Life and Life Only podcast is taking on more and more significance in relation to the other ones you know the John Lennon one I'm I'm hanging on really because I've created an audience over a number of years and it's hard to let that go the film one much as I love film honestly I prefer appearing on other shows like the Stinking Paws and Real Britannia and the Mime Renewed I much prefer being a guest than having to construct a film review podcast but uh, anyway those are my thoughts like I say it's very difficult to know unless you're in that position but something which is a was very inspiring. I had an interesting experience recently. Now, I've listened to Sam Harris's podcast for a while. You may know Sam Harris. He was part of what was known for a while as the intellectual dark web. And I was always a bit put off by his voice. I think I also had certain views about science and scientists that they're always a bit dry and unemotional. But um, I heard him on a podcast and I was inspired to listen to the audiobook of his book, Waking Up. And... Um, I had a kind of a magical experience, really. If you remember when I was talking about when I had COVID earlier this year on a previous podcast, I was saying that I had this quite magical time in the early hours because I'd wake up at weird times and I'd know that I wouldn't be working the next day. So I was strangely liberated, as you can be a, feel a bit when you're ill, even though you're not enjoying the physical feelings. And every now and again, I wake up at weird times like, I used to have terrible insomnia, I'm sure I've talked about that. And about uh, maybe a month ago, I was listening to this Sam Harris audio book and I woke up about 3.30. And what I do nowadays, I spend about half an hour trying to get back to sleep and then I admit defeat in a way. But I also take advantage of the fact that my senses are slightly different, heightened in a way, although I feel tired, my senses are heightened and I tend to receive information in a sharper way. So I thought, well, I'll listen to a bit more of this uh, audio book. And I was halfway through it and I ended up listening to the whole lot or the, the rest of it from about four o'clock till about 7.30. And it's a very inspiring book anyway. But it was so magical at that time of day. The other thing about it was that towards the end, I was 
falling asleep. I was dropping off back to sleep just as I was finishing this book. And I had that thing. Some of you must have had this before where you're listening to a podcast, you fall asleep, and then you have to find where you were before you fell asleep. And because I ended up falling asleep a few times, it worked out really well because I got to listen to the last bits of the book, which really made them hammered the points home, quite inspiring points. And I also got to have a few naps. And I find this a lot. Sometimes if I sleep four hours and then I have three or four naps, I actually feel the same as if I've had eight hours sleep, which is something worth thinking about. Anyway, all that was leading to the fact that, again, I'm going to paraphrase. This is not exactly what Sam Harris wrote. He was talking about, imagine if you were diagnosed with cancer and after a couple of weeks, you're reflecting back nostalgically to a time two weeks ago when you didn't have cancer, when you're in good health. And basically what what you're saying is, what wouldn't you give to be back there? Well, the news is, if you're listening to this and you don't have cancer or you don't have a serious illness, you're already there. So again, appreciate it. You know, it sounds quite cliched and simplistic nowadays to say that, but that's only because it's been said loads of times. As I've said before, a cliche sometimes becomes a cliche just because a lot of people say it, but that doesn't mean that it's not entirely valid. I think that's well worth thinking about. I've said before that gratitude has been found to be one of the highest indicators of happiness. You don't need necessarily a gratitude journal, as a lot of American self-help gurus recommend, but just to be grateful for things you have in your life. Okay, I'm going to go forward quite far here to a chapter called Fearing Death. We are frightened of things that we believe could cause us harm in some way. It might sound a mad question, but is death actually one of those things? Thomas Nagel, a modern philosopher, writes that we tend to have one of two views in reaction to this question. Either death is the worst thing for us as it denies us the one thing we have, or it's a symptom of confusion to say it's bad. Which is right? Is it the most natural and rational thing in the world to be afraid of death, or does it make no sense to fear it? Most of us would instinctively feel it makes sense to be scared of our demise. Certainly we find ourselves with a convincing evolutionary prerogative to try and avoid it. Even someone who insists that death should not be feared is likely to jump out of the way if a car comes hurtling towards him. The fear of death can make itself known in many ways. It may be overt at any time in life, leaving us with a sense of pointlessness that we cannot shake off. An older parent recovers from a stroke, but we find that this first real confrontation with mortality leaves them bewilderingly resentful of their family or it can leak out into such things as an obsession with cosmetic surgery, a frantic chasing after youth, or even an anxiety regarding one's children growing up and becoming independent. We might come to feel with some panic that our lives are passing by unlived. Plenty of people as they grow older come to dread birthdays, school reunions and important anniversaries. For many, the murky waters of their impermanence can bubble and stir into a source of deep anxiety, while others barely give it a thought until old age. And then, in one or another of its myriad forms, we will meet death. A progressive illness, a sudden accident, a quiet slipping away during a still night, or a slow mental deterioration that rids us of our personhood long before it finally brings our body to a grinding halt. We do not fear that we're going to die, not in the same way we might fear that we're going to get mugged if we walk down a sinister alley. Death is definitely going to happen. The fear we're discussing is more like a dread, that which accompanies the anticipation of something unwanted we know will happen to us. So yes, I'd agree with that. It's um, maybe the thought of it. And I'll be honest, the thing that I don't want is a painful death. I suppose that's a 
a form of cowardice, but would anyone look forward to that? I mean, when you think of the story of, say, Thomas More in the time of King Henry VIII or um, Joan of Arc, they were respectively beheaded and burned at the stake. If you think about how awful that would be, I mean, beheaded is a, is a quick thing, but in those days before they had guillotines, it was done by a person with an axe, so you're completely dependent on that person doing it in one swipe. But being burned at the stake is a agonising. I mean, that, I don't know how long it takes to burn, but it's a couple of minutes at least. It's not an instant thing. That's my perspective. But the actual idea of death, you know, I, I don't necessarily believe in an afterlife. And there's a long section of this book which deals with that, which I'm not going to read at all. I'm going to leave it again as to you to read it if you get this book. But uh, perhaps it's a little bit egotistical to care so much about the fact that you're not going to be here because once you are gone, depending on if there is an afterlife, you know, you're not going to know about it. And uh, perhaps we should think more of our loved ones. That may be one of the quote-unquote advantages of a longer, prolonged death, is that you can reconcile things with your loved ones. But, you know, I was saying uh, just before that I feel like I've done everything I want to do in my life. I think I probably have reconciled that with my family as well, that if something happened to me, in a sense, our relationship has already been reconciled. So there would be a grieving process for them, same as it would be for me if one of them died. And my parents are going to die relatively soon. In, in the, I'm saying relatively. I think they're doing pretty well for their age. They're both in their late 70s and they're doing incredibly well, but there is going to be a day when they're not going to be here. Some of you listening to this will have already lost your parents, some of you won't, but something we all have to deal with. And I guess one of the things Darren said is to be ready for it. That's what he said at the end of the fame section, wasn't it? If you're having some success in an industry like music where you're going to be famous, you need to almost get used to it or make a plan now. I think maybe it's making a plan for life. And we're going to see later that there's a tension, if you like, between living in the present moment and planning for the future. Darren has a solution for that. So in the same section about fearing death or not fearing it, Darren writes, two arguments have endured through a couple of thousand years of Western philosophy, urging us to shed our fear of death. Number one is you won't be there when it happens. And here's a quote from the Epicureans. So death, the most terrifying of ills, is nothing to us, since so long as we exist, death is not with us. But when death comes, and we do not exist. It does not concern either the living or the dead, since the, for the former it is not, and the latter are no more which is a more poetic way of saying what I just said, I think. <laughs> While these words may not ring crystal clear, the message seemed to be straightforward enough. Death can't be bad for us because we won't be around to experience it when it happens. By the time it comes, we are by definition unable to have any sort of experience, let alone a bad one. In the episode I did earlier this year, where I read my two stories, Travelling Light and Pure Heaven, I detailed a scene where I died, if you remember. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned it at the time, but I, I, was, I was inspired by a scene in the film Gladiator, which I haven't seen for years, but there's a point where he's teetering between life and death. And I tried to describe that scene. And that, in a sense, goes against the quote that you won't be around when death happens, because you could be around when death is about to happen, and you might have a moment, almost like going to sleep. You know, there's that moment, there's that twilight moment, just before you go to sleep and just before you wake up where you are between the waking and sleeping state. And that could happen if you knew you were about to die. So I'd slightly refute that. Now, Darren uh, talks about the fact that 
if he'd emerged from the womb as a girl, his parents, I think he said, were going to call him Jessica. And so he says, Jessica Brown never existed. Should we feel sorry for her? No. She exists no more than you will after you die. It makes no sense to attribute to her any sort of experience. Of course she never existed, but that's neither here nor there. You will be non-existent to just the same extent as Jessica once you are dead. Non-existence can't be bad for you any more than it's bad for Jessica. So what on earth is there to fear? And he makes a point elsewhere that there were millions of years where you didn't exist. And depending how long, okay, the earth lasts, that's debatable, especially with nuclear weapons and so forth. There may well be a long time when you don't exist after you're dead. So it kind of goes back a little bit to what we were saying um, earlier about how how small we are, you know, and how that's not a bad thing. Just a little bit more on that. So we know something can't be bad for you if you've never existed, like Jessica Brown. But what if you have existed at some time? This seems to be the key point. Imagine the death of a young girl. Surely it would make sense to say that the premature death was bad for her, we would call it tragic. It would surely make sense to say her life would have been better for her had she lived to be 80. Not much better for us in terms of how we would feel about her death, but actually better for her. So dying young would constitute a harm. Even if she had lived until 70, it would still most likely be better for her to live another 10 years. How is it bad for her if she's not around to experience being dead? Perhaps it's not enough just to say that a thing is harmful. We also need to say when it is. Epicurus is saying that death and the harm it's supposed to cause would have to happen at the same time. For this girl's early death to be bad for her, we have to allow for the harm of death to happen while she's alive. And he expands on that. But it is, in, it is interesting, isn't it? When a baby is a victim of a cot death, it's obviously tragic. I mean, you can't imagine what it's like for the parents. A cot death, by the way, is basically when a baby suddenly dies in their cot after not having had an illness. It's just a sudden death and, you know, you just can't imagine anything worse. But it's an interesting point. Is it tragic for the baby itself? I would say no, because the baby didn't know any different. Maybe for an adult, when they're dying, like I said earlier, if you take my story, for example, I was basically, it was a story where I was stabbed in the street and I had about, I don't know, two minutes or whatever it was, where I knew I was going to die. And I was sort of reconciling it in my mind. I might think to myself oh, damn, you know, I was you know, I was in the middle of writing a book or something and that's going to disappear. But then you would think, well, it would seem absurd to feel sorry for yourself. It would be more natural to think of the people that get left behind. You know, that's all I'm going to say about that. But then we'll move on to the second reason not to fear death. You've already been there. Imagine you know you are due to have a certain unusual experience, which we'll call the thing. You know that the thing is going to happen soon and you find yourself nervous, unsure whether it's something to be worried about. Then you realise you've already experienced the thing in the past. It's happened before and it was absolutely fine. The thing, now you come to think of it, is something you've never had any bad feelings about and when it did happen before, it caused you no problems at all. So given all this, would it make any sense to be scared of the fact that you're going to have the experience of the thing? Clearly, that would not seem to be a rational response. Even if you felt nervous about it, surely the knowledge that you've experienced it before, quite happily, should greatly mitigate your worries. Lucretius said that the internal non-existence of death is something we've already been through. It happened before we were born. We've been in the eternal abyss once before, and we don't feel any regret about it. So why fear returning? 
Very interesting. It's um, this is what I was saying earlier. We've non-existed before, so perhaps worth thinking about. If you're listening to this, what is your fear of death? Think about it in your mind. Is it fear of a painful death? Is it a fear that you won't be remembered? I'm just going to leave that with you because it's very, very interesting, but it's very personal to each person. There are various examples, and obviously there's a lot more detail. Now, another section of the book, which is extremely interesting, is the idea within the death section of the book, is the idea of an immortal life. What would happen if you discovered that you were going to be around forever? Now, one of my favourite films of the 90s was Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. If you remember, I did a video, I don't know, some of you remember this, where I was uh, absolutely slating the film Yesterday, the Beatles-themed film, where there's a parallel world where the Beatles never existed. And during that, I was saying about how romantic comedies can be profound. They don't have to be silly and only commercially minded. And Groundhog Day is a good example of that. Surely everyone will know the story. Bill Murray is a weatherman. He goes to cover this thing that's called Groundhog Day, where a groundhog comes out and predicts whether predicts the weather. I can't remember the details, but he wakes up the next day and it's still Groundhog Day. And he wakes up every single day and it's still the same day. And essentially, um, everyone else's actions will be the same in relation to him. He acts the same on that original day. If someone had come up to him on that day, and someone did and say, hey, Phil, and it's an, an old friend from school, that will happen every day. But there's a point where there's one day where Bill Murray punches this guy. So obviously this guy reacts to being punched or reacts to Phil giving him a hug, whatever it is. And... Uh, it's such a great film because Bill Murray, who's just perfectly cast for it, he goes through all the stages that you'd imagine. There's a point where he says, oh, this is amazing. I can do anything I want. So there's this one scene where he's stuffing himself with cakes. There's another one where he commits crimes, knowing he'll get away with it. Because even if he goes to sleep in jail, he'll wake up the next day in his bed. But then he realises how absolutely empty it is and of course it has a rom-com ending if you haven't seen the film i urge you to watch it and i won't give away the ending but you can probably probably guess and so i was thinking about this and i don't know if it says something about me but the idea of an eternal life seems like hell to me (laughs) but um we're going to read a few bits about this from the book we do not have to look hard to see why our initial enthusiasm for the immortal life is misguided True, our current projects and engagements could be fulfilled, even beyond our wildest dreams. We might relish becoming a successful and highly gifted concert pianist. Perhaps if we are lucky, the joy we derive from the activity might last several decades. We could travel the world enjoying public acclaim and all the deeper rewards of a period of time spent doing something we love. Eventually, however, that pleasure would have to cease. Fame would no longer excite us and our enthusiasm would wane. We'd have played all the pieces that we enjoy and would lack the drive to seek out new ones. The lifestyle of the pianist would grow dull. We would start a new hobby. That could burgeon into a new career. And likewise in time, despite much success and enjoyment, we would become bored of that too and switch focus to yet another. And then he says, How many times would we have to fall in love before the prospect of yet another attachment filled us with tedium? How many friends would come and go before the very idea of making any social effort seemed pointless? When would we stop bothering? And I'll just pause to say that what I was telling you earlier about the fact that I've achieved everything I really want to achieve and I've been to all the places I want to go, I, I'm feeling a bit like that. I mean, I, 
this is absolutely to do with me and not to do with people, but I've become bored of making social efforts because I'm not sure anyone will say anything that I haven't heard before. And that's partly because of the fact that I have majorly over-educated myself. And that's not a boast, that's just something I've essentially chosen to do. I've chosen to continually read about ideas in the last 10, 15 years to come to the point where not much surprises you. And one of the great elements of life is surprise. So one thing I'm planning to do in the near future is to switch all that off. I feel like I'm always planning that, but (laughs) I might do it one day. Just switch all that off and leave myself more open to wonder, I think. Rory Sutherland, who I mentioned earlier in in one of his TED Talks, he concludes um, by quoting someone else who said, we're perishing for the want of wonder, not for the want of wonders, which means that we don't need more wonderful things in our life. We need to get our sense of wonder about the things we already have. So carrying on in this theme, the philosopher Martha Nussbaum puts it like this. In general, the intensity and dedication with which very many human activities are pursued cannot be explained without reference to the awareness that our opportunities are finite, that we cannot choose these activities indefinitely many times. In raising a child, in cherishing a lover, in performing a demanding task of work or thought or artistic creation, we are aware at some level of the thought that each of these efforts is structured and constrained by finite time. This is back to Darren. Without any interests or engagements to define us, we would presumably lose our sense of identity. We would have nothing to separate us from others and give our life its particular flavour. This is the inevitable consequence of the unfathomable boredom that immortality would impose on us. Everything worthwhile in your life draws its meaning from the fact you will die. We need death in order to live. The meaning of life, wrote Kafka reputedly, is that it stops. The next quote is from Todd May in a book just entitled Death. For humans, an immortal life would be shapeless. It would be without borders or contours. Its colour would fade and we could anticipate the fading from the outset. An immortal life would be impossible to make my life or your life. Because it would drag on endlessly, it would sooner or later just be a string of events lacking all form. It would be impossible to distinguish background from foreground. A life without temporal boundaries, writes the philosopher Samuel Scheffler, would be no more a life than a circle without a circumference would be a circle. Okay, next part I'm going to read is called Freud's Flower. The finite boundary death imposes on us provides fundamental meaning and structure to our daily endeavours. It makes us human. The very notion of transience is fundamental to human experience. Yet death seems so bad for us because it deprives us of what we instinctively want permanence. We want to extend our projects into the future, at least for now, at least until this or that is completed, and so on for as long as we take interest in anything we do. Yet the very fuel that gives those projects their impetus is the fact that they must end at some point. If we are looking for a therapeutic answer, we find it. Embrace transience rather than fight it. Epictetus suggested we bring to mind, as we kiss our daughter goodnight, that she might not be alive in the morning. What sounds at first like a morbid idea soon reveals its power as we consider it. By reminding ourselves that our loved ones are not immortal and that they may be taken from us at any point, we not only mitigate the shock if and when they do die, but we remember to value them more in the present. We cannot take anything for granted when we consider that it will eventually cease to exist. How often do parents nostalgically reflect on their children when they were younger? It's easy to look at photographs and miss those cute, plump-faced miniature versions of the gawky and resentful specimens they've become. 
how much more difficult it is to routinely take stock when they are infants or toddlers to think, this is a special time, here you are now, you will never be this age again. Then he expands on that and uh, two things to say really, to reiterate really, this idea of the finite. As he said, the magic is that things will end. And yes, transience is something that you, I would say you must embrace, not that you should embrace, you you have to embrace it because yes, there's permanence up to a point. For example, you get a permanent job as opposed to say a zero hours contract or you get married and that has a certain sense of permanence. You know, all these things are real. It's not that they're not real. It's just that they will end eventually. And uh, the other thing, of course, is appreciating the moment. Yet another thing that's become a cliche, but it's perfectly valid. And there will be more of that later. Each period of a child's life, as it zips by at disarming speed, is likely to feel extraordinarily precious to a parent. And the fact each age will never be revisited makes it more significant. Things would feel different if we knew our children would never grow up. Surely it is the potential for future life and growth that we see in their wide, unabashed eyes that forms a substantial part of the magic. So this is why milestones are quite important. You know, 18th birthday, 21st birthday, whatever it is. Obviously big events in your life. And a quick shout out to my uh, friend and comrade Luke Thompson, who I've obviously done a lot of podcasts with now over the last uh, three years. He's just had a second child and he did a podcast with his wife talking about the birth and really nice stuff. Lovely stuff, as Alan Partridge would say. There's one for you, Luke. Transience also opens the way to melancholy, a rich aspect of our experience that offers up a peculiar form of beauty. Melancholy is caught up with the passing of time, nostalgia and a knowledge that all things must end. The Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Zizek That's the best I can pronounce it. Sorry, Slavoj, if that's how you pronounce your first name. (laughs) So I'm turning into Alan Partridge. Cites melancholy as the starting point of philosophy. Without disappointment, we would have no reason to inquire or try to improve. Music is perhaps the most obvious vessel for this melancholy richness because music, unlike a painting, is inseparable from transience in that it moves through time. Where the myriad distractions and addictions of life offer us pleasure and short-term happiness, Melancholy gives sadness a place to comfortably sit. J.S. Bach's Cello Suite, the aria from the Goldberg Variations, and the Erbarm Dich from his St. Matthew Passion, Chopin's Nocturnes, Gorecki's Third Symphony, composers have always nourished the interlacing of beauty and sadness. He gives a couple more examples, and he also includes Tom Waits' Closing Time and the songs of Rufus Wainwright. The magic often happens by means of counterpoint. A happy scene is made all the more beautiful for being described against a musical backdrop of sadness. As Tom Waits sees a woman across a bar, or Richard Strauss's lovers look forward to a kiss on the beach, the prolonged tempo and minor key take hold of the moment and bring it exquisitely, heartbreakingly out of time, making its impermanence even more apparent. Such moments are beautiful because they are tragic and must pass. The end again gives the content its meaning. And so much to say even about that paragraph, but we've already been uh, two hours on this episode. So just to say, obviously, you know, I'm a musician and music has been a massive part of my life, most of my life, really. Even thinking of uh, as a child, I didn't actually learn an instrument, but my granddad used to pass me his harmonica quite unhygienically, really, invite me to um, have a go on that. And uh, I used to tinkle at the piano, I think, because my 
sisters who are four and five years older than me were learning piano. Yes, and melancholy. I mean, melancholy has been a part of my life, again, all my life, really, because I remember as a child, and again, I know we've talked about memory is fallible, and sometimes a, a, what you think is a memory is actually a subsequent bit of information, if you like. So if someone has told you, so let's say I, I have a memory of being five and thinking melancholy thoughts. It could be that when I was 12 or 13, someone said, oh, when you were five, you used to say melancholy things. I mean, I don't think I did at five, but you get the point. But yeah, I remember as a child, I, I, w- I was moved by sadness and minor key music and all that kind of thing. Although I wouldn't have known the musical theory side of it, there's a, a record that my, I think it was my granddad and my grandma's record called Cocktails and Piano. And in one of my John Lennon episodes, I actually played a little bit because I was talking about my musical origins. And on this record, there was, um, I can't remember the original name of it, but it's by Borodin, and it became Stranger in Paradise. Like, I'm a stranger in paradise. But I didn't, it wasn't the lyrical version I knew. It was just that melody. And it was played by um, a solo piano in amongst this occasionally cheesy cocktail jazz. It was a cocktail jazz album of standards love me tender yesterday that kind of thing but yeah melancholy has made my life very very rich and i'm very prone to it even when things are going well that's the thing it's not about always feeling sad because of what's happening in your life it can just creep up on you and uh you know it's different from depression because depression is a a very heavy feeling of sadness melancholy is almost something that's it's more about poignancy or as much about poignancy than sadness So he carries on um, talking about that. Christopher Hitchens here is quoted. Hitchens, of course, was an atheist. And it's related to a metaphor that Darren mentions. It's as if we are attending a fantastic party and are told we have to leave. We don't want to go, but neither really do we want it to last forever. It would be unbearable if it did. So we talked just before, if you could be immortal and... As I said, even if the party is fantastic, would you want it to go on forever? Isn't the greatness of the party the fact that at 1am or 2am or whenever it's going to finish? Anyway, Hitchens says, it will happen to all of us that at some point you get tapped on the shoulder and told not just that the party is over, but slightly worse, the party's going on, but you have to leave. And it's going on without you. That's the reflection, I think, that most upsets people about their demise. All right, then let's, because it might make us feel better, let's pretend the opposite. Instead, you'll get tapped on the shoulder and told, great news, this party's going on forever and you can't leave. You've got to stay. The boss says so, and he also insists that you have a good time. So once again, Christopher Hitchens has taken a good idea and thought one step ahead. And yeah, that's the thing. You could almost bring in the concept of FOMO here, fear of missing out. I wonder if some people, when they're on the edge of death whether it's after a long life or after a a shorter life, maybe they think, oh, God, I'm going to miss out on everything that's going to go on after I die. But think about it. As we said earlier, unless we wipe ourselves out with nuclear weapons, it's going to go on for a long time. You can't possibly... It's like wanting to be in every place at every moment. You know, you can't be. You're missing out on loads and loads and loads of stuff right now because you're only... Your world is only a little corner, a tiny corner of the world. Going back to what we were saying earlier, I urge you to watch that video about the universe. It's it's very therapeutic. 
Right, and we're going to look at mourning and uh, grief. Mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. We've got a quote here from Brandy Schilles, if that's the way you say her name. There's lots of difficult, difficult to pronounce names in here. As Brandy describes in her book, Death's Summer Coat, funerals can be pitifully inadequate when it comes to providing what mourners need. Quote, the greatest part of mourning really happens after the last cold clod of earth has been cast over the grave or the coffin sent to the cremation chamber. After the guests go home and go back to their lives, after the silent car rolls down the silent driveway and you find yourself in the fuzzy dark of a long ever after, the dead have gone. We remain and we remember. And this is back to Darren. Anyone who has lost someone dear will testify to this. The pain of grief is often in part a feeling of aloneness, of wandering through a world populated by people that still laugh and go about their days and cannot understand what you're going through. Our brains still retain certain well-trodden neural pathways that trick us again and again. I must tell him about this. I should call her and see how she's doing. Oh, she'd like this. Familiar lines of treacherous associations that repeatedly beckon us on until we collide with the soft, hard wall of that person's devastating absence. Grieving does to a great extent pass, but it is of no service to assure those who grieve that time will heal. Rose Kennedy, the philanthropist mother of the assassinated Kennedys, is attributed with the following words, It has been said time heals all wounds. I do not agree. The wounds remain. In time, the mind, protecting its sanity, covers them with scar tissue and the pain lessens, but it's never gone. At this point, I just want to shout out a comedy programme that everyone in Britain will know, Only Fools and Horses. There's a fantastic episode called Strained Relations, and it's from, I think, 1985. The show started in 81, and it was a fairly standard comedy, but then this episode in particular because uh, the character of uh, Grandad had died, but he'd actually died in real life as well. So the cast, I think, had just buried him, been to his funeral, the real actor's funeral, Leonard Pierce, and then they were burying their grandfather in the show. And it's such a wonderful show because the main character, Derek, or Delboy, the way he deals with the grief is by making jokes and the... I don't know if you call it a reception. What's the equivalent of a reception? They go back to their house and they're having drinks and everything. And then Uncle Albert, who emerges as the replacement for Grandad in the show, he says something to Rodney, and I, I, I won't spoil it, because I'd like you to watch it, but he makes the point that Dell is releasing pressure by laughing. And there's, there's all kinds of different ways that we deal with grief. And uh, there's not any right or wrong way. In a funny way, any way you deal with grief is the right way for you. And there are stories of people who just almost ignore it and they just appear to carry on with life as normal. And you might think, God, oh, you know, is this person a psychopath or something? They have no feelings. And no, it's, it's a way that people deal with things. All right, just carrying on. This is second half of the next paragraph. We start our infant lives by losing the safest environment we will ever know and encounter loss of the old and secure every time we briefly take on something new. Life is growth, and if it does not involve a perpetual passing away, then we can neither grow nor live in any meaningful sense. And eventually, by accepting this truth in our honest grief, we will be ready to let the first rays of light penetrate the darkness. Another very nice turn of phrase. There's another section, I'm not going to read this, but I just wanted to briefly mention it. This lady, Deborah, 
who was the lady who had cancer who contacted Darren, she talked about how people saying about the brave battle, oh, you're so brave dealing with it. She was talking about how that didn't really help her. And that was something to think of. She said, it's also unhelpful to be told enthusiastically to keep fighting. Don't let it beat you. Don't give up. All that these inane, positive, yet totally inappropriate comments do is make the sufferer feel that they're lacking in moral fortitude or backbone. Yeah, I suppose it's the idea that if someone says, try harder, try harder, it means you're not trying hard enough by implication. And she said, you know, taking an honest and authentic look at my situation and in doing so, accepting that I'm going to die does not equal giving up. It means I don't waste time over petty things. Life is too short, especially mine. This is back to Darren. Death, we remember, does not round off a life with a satisfying ending of a novel or film. It does not complete. It curtails. It's up to us to bring the story to a close by recognising it as such. If a person knows she is dying, I would suggest that she needs from her loved ones every opportunity to take stock of her story and bring it to a meaningful end. Despite the fact that those of us who must watch them deteriorate are just doing our painful and miserable best to deal with the situation, it remains better for everyone that the dying person's story is given priority and not that of the onlookers. Their experience is likely to be enriched as well if the deceased is able to leave with as much closure as possible. If you're facing your own death and have the clarity of mind and opportunity to make such choices, then realise that for you to own your death, to author it and to shape it, is tremendously important. And of course you should, this is me talking, you should own your life as well as your death. You should own your actions. Yeah, very interesting. I suppose one thing that Deborah was getting at, it echoes what uh, Chris Ryan of the podcast Tangentially Speaking, and I dedicated one of the episodes to him, the Travelling Light Pure Heaven one, I think it was. He said, you know, there's an obsession now with just prolonging life. And obviously, if you wanted to go down the more conspiratorial route, it is a fact that nursing homes and so forth, you know, they do rely on keeping people alive, you know, because these nursing homes are very, very expensive. One of my uncles is in one of them at the moment. And Chris Ryan said, do we live longer or do we just take longer to die? And so, yeah, I get what Deborah's saying, you know, you don't need to prolong your life by, I don't know, six months or something or a year or whatever it is if you can find closure. So I love that idea. I don't remember, because I recorded, like I said, part one and part two so long ago now, it was a few months ago. I don't remember if we talked about this earlier, but earlier in the book, Darren had said, yeah, life doesn't end like a novel or a film. And I, I do remember mentioning songs that don't uh, resolve. And there have been films, you know, it became quite trendy or people started to enjoy maybe in the 70s films that had these ambiguous endings and they've always been films like that since and perhaps they are a bit more realistic in that you just you don't get this satisfying ending but at the same time you know if you did know that you only had a few days to live you can find closure you can create your own satisfying ending and I don't know if happy ending would be the word but satisfying ending or something that feels complete so you can at least regardless of what you think is on the other side of death, you can feel at peace at least. Another short paragraph here. This is, I mean, this is something I said a minute ago, but this is Darren saying it in a slightly different way. There are a million handbooks for giving birth and raising an infant and an obvious paucity of instructions for what matters most at death. 
Instead, the medical profession takes centre stage and the narrative can become one of life extension rather than preserving what people want. The post-enlightenment medic's remit is extension of life. Now to progress, we must place that medical knowledge in context and learn what else is important. And doctors may need to learn to face their own fears about death in order to communicate more helpfully and honestly with the dying. And I apologise, that happens occasionally. I'll have an interjection and then not realise that the next bit I'd highlighted was basically saying the same thing. It's very, very difficult to go through such a long book as this and try and find good bits to give you an all-encompassing series. And I can't proofread every single bit that I'm going to read out. You know, I'm, I'm guessing a little bit here and I'm improvising to some extent, but that's the magic of editing, folks. What you're hearing now is the best version of my recording of this podcast. Now, yet another thing that's unfortunately become something of a cliche is this uh, regrets of the dying idea. But again, it's it's completely valid because if you talk to people who are dying and they give you their perspective, it's happening to them. It's real. It's happening in real time. And some of you may be familiar with these, but Darren... Um, Cites Bronnie Ware, an Australian nurse working in palliative care, recorded what she perceived to be the top five regrets of the dying. Number one, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Number four, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. Number five, I wish I'd let myself be happier. And I'd probably recommend if you listen to this to write those down or make a note of those. It's the kind of thing you can maybe constantly refer to and check in with yourself. So taking those in turn, am I living a life true to myself? Am I working too hard? Am I expressing my feelings? Am I staying in touch with my friends? And of course, family as well, add to that. And am I letting myself be happy? So that's a little checklist you can refer to at various times. And I just want to focus on the fifth one there. I wish I'd let myself be happier. That fifth regret does rather linger in the air, doesn't it? Here we are, convinced that our priority in life, in one form or another, is our happiness. We work hard to secure money to sustain a family and a home because we know they will make us happy. We endlessly buy things, often more than we can afford, because we are convinced they will make us happy too, at least for a while. We please others to avoid confrontation and, quote, keep everyone happy, including ourselves. One survey tells us we watch television for four times longer than we spend talking to people and 20 times longer than we engage in religious activities, although we report that communication, worship and meditation make us far happier than TV. Yet at the end, we are likely to feel a pang that we could have allowed ourselves to be happier, as if the idea had never occurred to us. Again, there's no shame in working hard for a better quality of life in the future. You should live in the moment is as unhelpful and imperative as you should believe in yourself and secure the future you want. The only should we need ever take on board is that we should get on with our lives without hurting other people. Meanwhile, maybe, we can be aware of how we are likely to later judge our current actions and check that we're not wasting time with things that evidently do not matter. Maybe we don't need to work so hard. Maybe much of our work time is caught up with petty politics and pursuing meaningless things, and we could take stock and address that. Perhaps we should get back in contact with friends about whom we've almost forgotten, because one day they may matter a lot more to us than the other distractions that are stopping us from tracking them down today, and we can reconsider the wisdom of long-term goals that might now consume us needlessly. 
So he's actually touched on uh, a couple of the other regrets, not just that last one. Now, on the next page, Darren does a, a kind of thought exercise on possible future regrets. Paying attention to certain future regrets might genuinely enhance our lives in the here and now. When I carry out this thought exercise, some specifics come to mind. Possibly they say more about me, but I think they're worth noting. And this is quite long, so I'll have to summarise this. If you have something to come out about, come out. If you carry a secret around with you, you learn to protect it in all sorts of ways that disconnect you from the rest of the world and the people in it. Meanwhile, the idea of your secret being discovered will come to fill you with horror. But the huge deal you've turned into is not a reflection of how big a deal it is in the eyes of other people. To them, it's just some information about you. Generally speaking, they don't care. They're far more likely to care if you're happy, and they'll certainly care if you're obviously hiding something. But they are unlikely to care about the thing itself. So he carries on. He's obviously talking about um, him coming out as gay, which he did a few years ago. Number two, you'll never regret falling in love. Do so over and over again. Lower your standards if necessary. It might lead to heartbreak now and then, but it'll always be worth it in the end. When he says lower your standards, I don't think he's talking about physical attractiveness, or that may be one part of it. But maybe lower your standard of what an ideal love relationship would be. Number three, if you work in a creative field and you're faced with the choice of doing the job for the money or doing the job for the fun of it, Take the fun one whenever you can. You'll rarely enjoy the work you do for money. Number four, don't be a dick. People around you are not there to make your life easier. The more successful you are, the harder it is to remember that because you inevitably get used to people looking after you. Everyone is fighting a hard battle. Everyone is just trying to do their best in the same way that you are. If you remember this, and if, as much as you can, you treat people with compassion you're likely to feel better and your life will be noticeably happier. You'll connect with more people and that's where good things and opportunities come from. I said earlier, I think that I want to believe that the vast, vast majority of people are decent people who, as you said, they're struggling and just trying to get on with life. There is a small minority, so as I said earlier, have sociopathic, psychopathic traits who may well be maliciously harming and maybe even ruining other people's lives but i think it's a very small minority five look at what takes up your time and see what is worth doing and what is not think about what provides enjoyment connectivity a sense of fulfillment and what when you look back will have been a waste of time or stifled you look for ways of removing those latter activities from your life not only does this offer the benefit of removing negative behaviors it also engages you with the considered life Suddenly you have a vantage point from which to view your behaviour and from there you can give your life shape and meaning. I'm going to move to the next chapter which is living now and this is where we're going into the realm of the present moment. The present moment can be a more productive place to focus our attention than the past or the future. The here and now we have seen rarely contains problems. It's release from the tyranny of our imposing narratives. We might feel bad about events in the past or dread those yet to come. But rarely in the present, rarely right now, do we find ourselves in the middle of a serious difficulty. Right now, we can gain some perspective by stepping back from our feelings and recognising that they are not us. Right now, we can undo some of the grip of the past by recognising the patterns that rule over us. For those who find it difficult to switch off concerns about the past and the future, and who therefore suffer from anxiety, 
which often feeds off one or the other, any number of books are available teaching mindfulness meditation, an effective means of bringing one's focus back to the here and now. The practice aims to return your awareness to a standpoint between your thoughts rather than where it normally is, caught up in their maelstrom. For the anxiously deposed, learning to simply be in the present moment without trying to fix everything is a way of sidestepping the tyranny of anxieties created by the phantoms of the past and future. He then name-checks Sam Harris, who I mentioned earlier. In terms of mindfulness and meditation, obviously I did a two-part episode about meditation, one of the early episodes of Life and Life Only that you can find back in the archives. I also did an episode with Luke Thompson, and I'll put that in the show notes. That was an episode on his show, Luke's English Podcast. He then talks about getting old and the fact that in society getting old is considered a bad thing and that old people are marginalised and almost treated as non-people, which is absurd because they're still the same people that they were when they weren't old. But there's this stigma, and I think so much of that is to do with advertising and all this There's a commercial aspect, you know, anti-aging creams, dyeing your hair, all that kind of thing. I get lots of laughs from making fun of Ringo Starr and people like that. Just If you look at Ringo Starr's hair, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's not black. It's, I I call it, two shades darker than jet. (laughs) I'm sure I've said that on a show before. I get a kick out of that and I um, occasionally make people laugh with my Roger Moore impression because Roger Moore's hair was alarmingly... uh, brown or black or whatever it was when he was nearly 90. I think the best uh, description of dyed hair I've ever heard, though, was um, Paul McCartney did an interview with, I think it was GQ, and the interviewer was describing him at the beginning and and described his hair as reliably chestnut, which uh, I absolutely love. I can't put it any better than that. Now, just talking about ageing, just a very short paragraph here. We want to grow old because the alternative is that we die. They that's old people, are what each one of us will be a number of years from now. If we feel a bias against the elderly, we are feeling it against our future selves. And if we look at our lives as great space-time worms, we can forget the future part of that description and see it as simply an aversion towards ourselves. Now, the late great Bill Hicks had a wonderful way of combining comedy and profundity. And he was talking about how he doesn't like children. And what he meant was that certain aspects of children, the things they do, all the the noise they make and the mess they make when they're eating food and stuff. But he managed to turn that into a profound point. And he said, why do people worship children but not worship adults, let's say? You know, why do, why do we um, talk about how great children are? Do they pass a point where we stop liking them or something? Or, you know, so he's making a point there. And the same with um, ageing, as he said, you know, if you take out the future part, you're still the same person. So you're prejudiced against yourself and what you actually aspire to be. Because as I said, if you want to live a, a long life, you aspire to be old. You may not aspire to have certain traits of the elderly, but you can't have one and not have the other. Right, so continuing on the theme of um, death and the present moment, while reading on the subject of death on a summer's day in the garden of a hotel near Sheffield, I found my attention drifting from the page to a long-leafed red-berried shrub next to me. For a while I considered... What if I knew I was going to die tomorrow? How utterly beautiful this plant is. I have no idea what it's called, and I've never paid attention to one before. What a stunning thing. What if I knew I would never see a plant or a red berry again? I'd be able to stare at this for hours. God, what a beautiful thing. 
Months later, in an excellent cafe in Norwich, I'm now doing a similar thing. In front of me is a little brown sugar pot made of clay. A spoon sticks out of a hole at the side of the lid. Someone made this. It looks handmade, but even if it isn't, someone designed this to neatly hold sugar in a spoon and to be a pleasing object. They made that, in a sense, to please me. There are rings around it where it seems, with my limited knowledge of pottery, that the glaze has been painted on while it span on the wheel. And now I see a little symbol signature on one side raised somehow in the clay. That person, who has represented him or herself with the shape of a miniature hook and star, made this. And if I like sugar in my tea or coffee, I would use it to make these things taste sweet, because the receptor sites on my taste bud cells, along with the fibres in my taste nerves and projection zones in my brain, would respond in conjunction with my opioid system to make me happy. How amazing. And he carries on with this description, but again, he's talking about something that just completely passes us by in normal life, in the, in the normal, um, it's the waking state, but it's, it's almost the waking dreaming state, really. We're just letting life pass us by, and we never notice beautiful things like leaves and plants and so forth. Now, in that two-parter on meditation that I just mentioned, I talked about when I was on this retreat, and uh, I was in Asia, so obviously there's a lot of insects, and I was watching ants going about their business, because I, suddenly, it was a 10-day silent retreat, and I had nothing to do. We had some downtime, and uh, I decided to watch the insects, and it was just absolutely astonishing watching them said doing their thing. So another thing you can do, you can apply to your life, is take notice of these little things, and notice how wonderful these things are. I guess it works better in nature, perhaps, than with things like sugar pots and, uh, you know, metallic things like buildings. I was debating with someone the other day, can a building be beautiful or is nature always going to be more beautiful? Alan Watts said, everything in nature wiggles, which is not entirely true, but you know what he means. He was talking about when the wind blows, you know, the leaves, the leaves wiggle, whereas buildings are all solid structures. They don't waver. And he preferred the wavering, I suppose. Right, carrying on. The present is a fact. The future is contingent. While an antidote to a fear of death is to embrace the present, we cannot remain there for long. At some point we want to know what use the current objects of our attention are to us, or how they might affect us for better or for worse, or how they compare to what we've seen before. And with these new thoughts we disconnect from the now and give over to our imagination. This is why we can only aim for good enough when it comes to embracing the present, for short of somehow remaining in a state of permanent focused meditation, we will always need to look forwards. To remind us, lest we become too fixated on living in the present, the intended result is a balancing act of the now and the yet to come. It's only awareness of the present moment that opens up a truly compelling experience outside of our daydreams and fantasies. Yet on the other hand, the temporarily limited future permits us a framework and context that allows us to make use of the present and give it meaning. If, though, we become fixated on the future, we miss out on the tranquility and richness of real experience. We achieve equilibrium by finding a good enough compromise. Embracing the present moment does not have to mean a brainless, passive giving of oneself over to the flow. It can be engaged and active. I'm writing this book here and now primarily for the enjoyment of doing so, but the pleasure I take in the process is inseparable from the fact that I'm trying to communicate ideas, which means that you, as the future reader, and the physical object that this virtual type document will eventually become, give shape to the enjoyment I'm experiencing now. 
yet I'm only concerned with the current task of expressing an idea. If I expand my sense of the here and now, I think, am I enjoying writing this book? How does it compare to my other projects? Should I do more writing and less TV? Would I enjoy that more? Have I found a nice place to write in today? These thoughts remain fixed in a present more akin to a snapshot of life than the kind of elusive fleeting instant upon which one seeks to come to rest in meditation classes. Meanwhile, I do not, for example, concern myself with worries of the future. How will this book further my career? How many people will read it? Will they want another book? What should I follow this with? Will they mess up the cover? These are of no interest, although I do care very much about the cover. (laughs) We should live in the present while we plan for the future. Achieving a balance will be good enough. We can wish, as much as we remember to do so, not for things to be exactly as they are, per se, but for things to be however they happen to be. Thus the future can lie in our sight, but without the brute clarity and single-mindedness with which any number of self-help gurus tell us to picture it. We can save much of the clear-sighted engagement for the present. So I suppose this is a bit of a split. I believe visualising specifics of the future is quite a good thing, but I think as long as you see them as visualisations, and you need to keep in your mind that, okay, I'm visualising something specific, but it's probably not going to turn out to be that specific. So it's planning for the future, but not... I don't know. Darren said fixating. Yeah, not not fixating on the specifics of it because then you're just controlling it again. You're, you're almost defeating the object. If you're going to do a visualization exercise, there's got to be a certain looseness and detachment about it. But everyone has their method. You know, the best thing is to try certain things and see what works for you. Some people work well with goals. But Darren, at the beginning of this book, was talking about how he doesn't like the... Um, SMART goals, SMART is an acronym. I think we talked about that maybe in part one. But goals work very well for other people. You know, in my life coaching, I find very broadly there's two types of people. One type likes practical advice and is not so interested in the emotional or psychological aspects of things. Whereas others, the type who might go to a therapist, and this is where I see myself as a kind of a replacement therapist, or as I've said before, as life coaching could be a first step to getting therapy you know it perhaps puts you in a better frame of mind to do the therapy later on but yeah there's definitely this broadly practical and emotional people with obviously a lot in the middle right we're nearly at the end dear folks this is actually the last chapter and it's called and now so he's obviously been talking about death and the future we found this nice blend where you're in the present moment but you do have some kind of plan for the future a little bit about mindfulness. Mindfulness challenges the stories we tell ourselves by having us pay attention to the larger picture, which is only accessible in the here and now. Paying attention to the present moment is our most effective means of undoing the harmful and perpetuating narratives by which we live, by challenging them with the counter-evidence we notice around us. In old age, mindfulness can increase health by saving us from a diminishing sense of ownership of our stories. In a 1976 experiment, a number of elderly residents in a nursing home were given houseplants to look after and water. They were also encouraged to make decisions for themselves, such as where to receive visitors and when movie night would occur on their floor. Meanwhile, a second control group was also given plants, but this time it was the nurses who looked after them and made decisions about visitors and movie showings. Three weeks later, the first group who'd been given responsibility was happier and healthier. 
18 months later, they were still significantly more active and sociable, but most astonishingly, this group lived longer. The mortality rate was twice as high in the group that had all their decisions made for them. Being granted authorship of our stories and experiencing mindfulness rather than mindlessness makes for happier and healthier lives. And I don't need to tell you that I second that. In matters of love, a mature relationship involves celebrating the mystery and wholeness of one's partner. It is standing in appreciation of their otherness, not neurotically attempting to obliterate it because at some level their separation from us might trigger responses we once had to a fallible, unavailable parent. It's realising that we are each of us alone, that no one is ever entirely right for us because we are all broken and that we can only open our broken aloneness to that of another. A good relationship, like a good parent or a good death, need only be good enough, consisting of two people navigating each other's inadequacies with kindness and sympathy. At its best, the poet Reina Maria Rilke tells us, consists in two solitudes protecting, defining and welcoming each other. Likewise, a mature life and a flourishing one involves standing in toleration and acknowledgement of ambiguity rather than greeting it with disappointment. Right, on the next page he's talking about anxiety and sadness and generally the unpleasant aspects of life. Wholeness cannot be found in the mere avoidance of troubling feelings. However helpful the tools of the Stoics are for reassessing attachments and finding one's centre of gravity. To live without anxiety is to live without growth. We shouldn't try to control what we cannot, and we must take responsibility for our feelings. But the reason for this is to walk out into the world with strength, not to hide from danger. If you feel anxiety, let it sit. See if it is amenable to the lessons we have learned. You don't need to fix things that lie outside of your control. You also don't need to fix the anxiety. It's the feeling that you have. It is therefore not you. The need to fix, to control, is what fuels the anxiety in the first place. Let it be, and it will lose its excessive force. Then, once you are no longer running away with it or trying to remove it, you might even welcome it. Now, I wouldn't say that severe anxiety is something to be welcomed, but I think a little bit. You know, it's one of these things, it's like stress. It's pretty clear to me that low-level stress is beneficial, but when it gets up to a certain level, it's not. And I'll give you an example. Let's imagine you're a little bit late for work and you have to run for the train or you know you know there's a train coming and you're a little bit late getting to the station and you've got to run I find it when that happens to me that little bit of running it's a little bit of exercise of course and it just kind of gets me going in a way but at the same time it's not something you can manufacture you know I suppose you could leave a bit a little bit late every day but then it's not quite the same as when it happens spontaneously But then what if I was very late and what if two other stressful things happened before I even got to work? Then it's pushing it up to that level where it's not so good. So I would say welcome low-level stress in your life. We can manage our anxiety in the ways discussed, but when it stirs, it's likely to be a helpful signal from an untended part of us that wishes now to be heard. If we shut our ears to these voices, they will come in time to own us, because the things that remain unconscious are always in charge. Jung called them offended gods, by which he meant energy-charged aspects of our personality, such as the erotic, the creative, the aggressive, that if not honoured, will wreak their revenge. Rather than seek to expunge all sadness, we might know when to pay attention to what it offers. So going back to uh, Rilke, this is a quote. After sadness passes, one might easily suppose that nothing had happened, 
but we have altered the way a house alters when a guest enters it. We cannot say who has come, perhaps we will never know, but there are indications that it is the future that enters into us like this in order to be transformed within us long before it actually occurs. That's almost the end of the book, but I didn't want to read the final words. You know, we're not like Woody Allen who said, uh, I don't know if you already meant this, but it's one of his famous quotes. When I pick up a book, I always read the last page first. Then if I die, at least I know what happened at the end. But we're not going to do that, folks. We have come to the end. This has been, uh, to use another (laughs) word that's become a cliche, a journey. It's been a bit of an odyssey, hasn't it? And this last episode, I haven't edited it yet, obviously, because I'm just recording it now, but clearly it's going to be the longest one. I think it's nice to end on an epic. Thanks to Darren Brown, of course, for writing this book. Thank you to you for listening. If you've listened to all four parts, I hope you've found a lot of useful stuff. I can't see how you wouldn't find at least some of this useful. The book is happy. Why more or less everything is absolutely fine. I discussed that sub title at the beginning of this series as i said a few times during it i don't want this series to be only a shortcut to reading the book i think you should read the book there's a lot in there it's a long book but it's very readable and i think those in britain who know darren brown i think most people in britain know his name and would know a little bit about him there is a groundedness to him that i don't think is fake i think it's real and um When I was reading about fame, as I said then a couple of times, his mid-level fame gives him a nice position where he's in touch with either sides of the extreme, i.e. people that aren't famous at all and people that are mega famous and have probably lost a lot of touch with reality. I like to think that even, let's take Tom Cruise, someone like that, I like to think that he's got some attachment with reality and I guess things like family would ground you and... I always think with famous people, if they can hang on to the people who were their friends before they became famous, that's a good thing. You know, some of those people change, but I think fundamentally a lot of our happiness comes from the family we were born into and maybe some of the friends we made earlier in our life. Anyway, just one final plug for my life coaching. If you're interested in life coaching or you know someone who might be, please email me at lifeonlifeonlypod at gmail.com. And finally, (laughs) this is quite funny. I was going to, I feel like I should say Merry Christmas because if my plan works, my scheduling plan, you're probably hearing this around Christmas. But the funny thing about it is that I'm sitting here on the morning of the 28th of September. (laughs) I've done some serious stockpiling. I had a plan to get all my podcasts recorded by the end of September and I've managed to achieve it because this is the last one my other podcasts are Glass Onion on John Lennon and Film Gold and as I'm sitting here now I've got eight episodes across those three podcasts to get out before the end of the year and I'm planning to get them out well before Christmas meaning you know, a week or ten days before Christmas of course you could be listening to this way in the future but if you're listening to this in December soon after it's come out Merry Christmas I mean, my family, as I'm sitting here, my family are already planning our Christmas. And you'll see um, Christmas cards, of if they're not already in the shops, will be soon. That commercial aspect moves pretty quickly, and you'll start hearing the Christmas songs. What a strange time warp, because I'm saying you're going to start hearing the Christmas songs, but there's no way you're hearing this before December, so that doesn't mean anything. 
Oh dear, life is messy, isn't it? Podcasting life, life in general. I must say I'm feeling very philosophical after reading all this. I'm really uh, pleased I found this book. Again, Luke Thompson, thank you very much for alerting me to this. I did know about it because I'd heard Darren doing podcasts and interviews and stuff, but really uh, enjoyed reading it. So yes, is this going to be the last episode of 2023? I think if I've learned uh, one thing from this book, it's maybe not to preempt the future. I think our relationship with the future should be one of gentle planning and taking some steps towards making the future a good one, but remembering to be in the moment. And with that final thought, a final thanks to all of you for listening. And please spread the word about Life and Life Only. I think it's good work being done here. And share links if you feel so inclined. So for the final time, take care, all the best, and see you soon. Goodbye. Sometimes, particularly with happiness, rather than seeing it as a this thing we should be aiming for, it's better seen as a byproduct. Maybe as a byproduct of finding meaning in life, for example. And when you don't chase it directly, it tends to arrive in a much fuller form. So much of what we're told today is about setting your goals. You'll be happy if you set your goals and if you believe in yourself. It's not a helpful way of thinking. When things don't work out, you've then got to blame yourself like it's somehow your fault. And you can only judge any, any philosophy by how well it serves you when things go badly. So that kind of optimistic philosophy doesn't serve us at all because it just adds our own sense of failure to a list of problems. What will make us happy? So as an example, I have a friend who decided to be a millionaire by a certain age. Achievement was a big thing for him, so he spent decades building up a company so that he could sell it and retire early and be a millionaire. He did all of that and became really depressed very quickly because what he hadn't realised was it wasn't being a millionaire and retiring that was important. It was the activity. It was throwing himself into building up a company. That's what gave his life meaning. So suddenly his life had no meaning. So we misunderstand the things that are supposed to bring us happiness. Alan Watts had the nice idea that when you listen to a piece of music, you don't just skip to the end because that's where it all comes together. Or when you read a book you don't, or watch a movie, you don't just go to the end because it makes sense of what's come before. And maybe life is more like a piece of music. Happiness, I think, is best understood as a byproduct of meaning. And what we do is we put the child into the corridor of this grade system with a kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And, yeah, you go to kindergarten, you know, and that's a great thing because when you finish that, you'll get into first grade. And then, come on, first grade leads to second grade and so on, and then you get out of grade school, you've got high school, and it's revving up, the thing is coming. Then you're going to go to college, and by Joe, then you get into graduate school, and when you're through with graduate school, you go out to join the world. And then you get into some racket where you're selling insurance, and they've got that quota to make, and you're going to make that. And all the time, the thing is coming. It's coming, it's coming, that great thing, the, the success you're working for. Then when you wake up one day about 40 years old, you say, my God, I've arrived. <laughs> I'm there. And you don't feel very different from what you always felt. And there's a slight letdown because you feel there's a hoax. And there was a hoax, a dreadful hoax. They made you miss everything. We thought of life by analogy with a journey, with a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at the end, and the thing was to get to that end success or whatever it is, or maybe heaven after you're dead. But 
We missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing, and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played.